It is now my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Sheila, who will be sharing on today's topic, sponsoring chronic slippers. Welcome, Sheila. Oh, thank you. So my name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you, Alice, so much. I know there are a lot of people who pull this together, uh, but Alice has been the person who's been in touch with me. And we were talking before the meeting. I was saying that um, I was saying you must be very organized in your life. She was just she was just so wonderful. And I you know would say, gosh, would you mind you know emailing this and texting it? And, you know, contact me here before then. It's on my calendar. But I mean, just you know, little things just to because I quite frankly, it takes a village. And she was just so on top of it. And it was just such, you know, it's just such a lovely thing. You know, we all just, when we all contribute and show up and bring our gifts, it just, it makes for real holy work. So thank you, Alice. I really appreciate it. And I'm delighted to be here. And thank you, Sherry and everybody else. Again, I know there's a bunch of other people. I think Nancy, Nancy probably, you know, floated my name out, you know, for this. So I'm just, I'm delighted to be here and, and glad that we are all here. As I always say, I'm 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 going to chat here for a, you know for for a while, and and what I need you to do is when I forget all this shit, I'm going to call you and you're going to remind me, right? So that's what we do for each other. So I haven't gotten it, but I'm getting it in the same way that perhaps none of you have gotten it, but you're getting it, and we're all just here together. We're all it's all just a delightful flow. We are sisters and brothers, uh, holding hands. There is no spiritual hilltop here. It's just people sharing their ash. So that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share my experience, strength, and hope. And as I said, um, I will depend on you to uh, to remind me when I forget because I wake up every morning with untreated alcoholism or untreated eating disorderism. Right? Anytime I mention alcoholism, I just just think uh, I'm doing that because because we're going to be talking about the big book quite a bit, it just makes it easier. I'm involved in other 12-step programs, but I'm going to keep my focus on Overeaters Anonymous. But I'm just really, really happy to be here. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 33 years. I will, I've only 20 years of abstinence. Um, I'll be 21 at the end of this month. And I was a chronic slipper for a dozen years. And all that means, all that means is I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings. And I had a lot of feelings to feel. Uh, I'll just throw this out now. So I, I started in Al-Anon in 1986. I got clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in 87. And I turned to somebody about three months in and I said, do you think you can have a problem with sugar? Like you have a problem with alcohol? And she said, absolutely go to Overeaters Anonymous. Oh, one more thing I wanted to tell you. If it looks like I'm rolling back and forth on a ball, it's because I'm rolling back and forth on a ball. So I'm dealing with a major uh, back issue. If you're praying types and you perhaps are, please keep me in your prayers because as I heard this last week, the last thing you want to hear a doctor say is spine and surgery in the same sentence. And I heard that. So um, just be aware that I'm, I'm rolling just to, to keep everything flexible. If I cut my video, it will just be so that I can stand and continue talking again, just to keep that, that back flexible and feeling good for these three hours. So at any rate, this woman said, yes, you can have a problem with sugar like you have a problem with alcohol, go to Overeaters Anonymous. And had I followed the direction that I got in my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, my whole trajectory here would have been completely different, right? So I'm going to just tell you what happened at that meeting, then I'm going to go back to the beginning of my story. But so I go in this meeting, I, my whole journey started in Michigan. So I go to this meeting on a Saturday morning. It's 11 a.m. meeting. I don't know how Overeaters Anonymous works. I know in Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't drink. So I figure, I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't eat. 
I weighed 200 pounds. My top weight's 200 pounds. So I show up at this meeting. There's about five people at the meeting. And the woman who's leading it is this beautiful black woman. And she's just finished her doctorate in accounting, Michigan State University, university right down the street. And I was in the seventh year of my four-year undergraduate degree. So I was already impressed, but she was at a healthy body weight. She was just warm and friendly and kind. I listened to the meeting and afterwards she stays and talks with me because I'm curious about what this abstinence is. I don't know anything about this or how this, how this works. And so I asked her and she said, well, she said, is there a food that you have a problem with? Is there something that gives you a particular amount of trouble? I said, sugar. And she said, yeah, that's very common for us. She said, do you think it would be possible for you to not eat sugar today and just eat three meals? And I can't remember if the conversation went beyond that. I hope that it did because we wouldn't ever want to say that to a newcomer. We wouldn't want to say, oh, you got a problem with sugar? Or you got a problem with, with quantity eating? Can you just not do that and just regulate and you know see you next week? We wouldn't want to do that. But I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt for a couple of reasons. First of all, the responsibility is always mine, my life, my recovery, my health. And I knew how 12-step programs work. Remember, I just told you I was in two other programs. And I've never been a, a fringe member in any 12-step program that I'm in, right? So I, I had a sponsor. I was doing the deal. I knew how this worked. I knew you got a sponsor and you started working the steps. If I come to meetings, I'm going to feel better. If I work the steps, I'm going to get better. So I knew how this worked. So even if the conversation didn't go beyond that, the responsibility was mine. But the other reason that it's essential for me to keep myself looking at my part, right? Finding out where my responsibility is is because it comes very naturally to me to be a victim. It comes very naturally because there was a lot of bad stuff that went on in my home when I was growing up and I was molested. I was molested by two different men on numerous occasions. So I'm already, because I was victimized, I've already got the victim programming. Those grooves run deep. So it's essential for me to take every opportunity that I can to step out of that role and not be a victim. It's essential that I do that because if I don't have any responsibility, I don't have any power. There's nothing I can do. So I always want to be looking at where my part is. So I'm going on the assumption, even if she didn't say anything, the responsibility was mine. I do know I left that meeting, right? And I went because I was hungry now because now it's what? Almost one o'clock. And I think, huh, okay. So I go in this restaurant, I get a meal, sit down, eat the meal, finish, go out and sit in my car. And I think three meals a day and no sugar. No, it's got to be more complicated than that. And for the next dozen years, I proceeded to complicate it. However, I did get a sponsor within a couple of weeks. And I was very lucky that I ended up with the sponsor that I ended up with because she said something that was a game changer for me and changed my life and has changed the lives of anybody I've ever had any contact with in Overeaters Anonymous since. People I've sat with in meetings, people I've listened to, people I've talked to on outreach call, people I've sponsored, people who have sponsored me. This woman affected my life because what became very clear once we got going together, it became very clear I wasn't ready to stop eating sugar and I wasn't ready to stop doing the quantity eating. I wasn't ready to feel those feelings. I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings behind the sexual trauma nor was I ready to feel the feelings behind growing up in a very, very dysfunctional alcoholic home. My parents weren't alcoholics, but my grandfathers were maternal and paternal. And my dad's alcoholic father was, he would come home and you know drink a half a bottle of wine and pass out on the floor. He was a butcher. Uh, his, my grandparents, my father's parents spoke very limited English. They were from what was then 
Czechoslovakia. And the only reason my dad didn't grow hungry, that they didn't go hungry, their family, because they grew up in real poverty in Flint, Michigan, is because, again, his dad was a butcher. But his dad would pass out. So my dad had kind of the passive aggressive issue going on in terms of his effect, how he was affected by alcoholism. My mother's alcoholic father was a horrendously violent man. He wasn't even just a child beater. He was a beater upper. And my mother was a wounded bird. She was the oldest child. There was a brother that came two years later. And then 10 years later, there were two more kids. And the three oldest children got the worst of it. And I have every confidence, if you are a boy and you are getting knocked around by your father with a closed fist, that that is just, that's just hell on wheels. But there's something that's just an eyelash worse if the same thing is happening and you're a girl. And I think my mother was also molested. My parents died young. They died in their 60s of various ailments. But the reality is they died of alcoholism. They were affected by alcoholism and all the limited skills that they had because of that. But my mother was just troubled for a lifetime. And I was the youngest of five children, probably an unplanned pregnancy. My siblings were all much closer in age. We were kind of lower middle class. My dad had gone to school on the GI Bill. Uh, he started building a successful business and was starting to have some real success with it, but had to bring that, bring that tumbling down on his head. Because again, having still been affected by alcoholism, uh, he just couldn't sit with that kind of ease and grace and success in a lifetime. And I just can't imagine that when my mom had four kids and the youngest one was walking, talking on her way to school, soon that my mom would have said, let's have another one. I just can't imagine it would have gone that way. And my mother came out of a violent home and by the, at 19, got married at 19. And by the time she was 26, she had five, uh, seven, she had five children and married into another violent home. My dad was apparently violent. I don't remember that. Uh, he grew out of that or got shamed out of it or Catholic churched out of it, whatever it was. But I don't remember that. But it is, I'll tell you what, the, the grooves are, are deep in terms of my response to to violence and, and things like that. I'm just turning off a thing going on from my back, just turning it off. My, my mother was just a, a troubled woman. And all of a sudden now she has a fifth kid and every indication shows that my mom just didn't, I was unplanned. I was unplanned and unwanted because my mother just couldn't, she couldn't get away from the pain. She just couldn't get away from the pain. You, of course, you don't know that when you're growing up and you're a kid. And you don't even know it when you're a young adult. And there have been years of my, my recovery in 12-step programs. I still didn't know it. It's only, you know, in the last 10, 15, 20 years that a lot of this stuff has landed for me. The, the first man who molested me used to give me candy bars in exchange for inappropriate French kisses. I was five years old, four or five. He owned a grocery store and it was when grocery stores were, you know, a couple times the size of a 7-Eleven. So a manageable size, but he'd be in the front of the store with me and he owned the store, right? So he was a butcher and remember, cause he'd have the butcher's apron on. I can remember the blood on the apron and stuff. And he'd be giving me these kisses and giving me these candy bars. And on about the eighth or ninth or 10th time at some point, I just decided why well, wasn't, I don't know what we had going on here, but I didn't like this, but I, I knew I needed those Milky Ways. So I started stealing. So stealing was a big part of my story. And five years later, there was the more egregious uh, sexual trauma, right? This is where I'm being driven around by, by this guy in the back of his Buick. And I have no idea how that happened. I, don't, I have no idea how my mother and my father and quite frankly, my siblings were all so checked out that, you know, this guy got me out of the house. I mean, what did he do? Come and say, I'll have her back by nine o'clock. I know it's a school night. I mean, I just have no idea how this went, how this was even possible. That's alcoholism. That's the pathology, right? So I needed sugar because I'd already started stealing it at five years old, let's say it was five. Well, two years later, 
my oldest brother, uh, the oldest one in our family got diagnosed with diabetes. And my parents were fairly unsophisticated people. They didn't know how to handle things. So basically all, all the sugar from our home disappeared. Well, now we've got a problem, right? Because I'm seven years old. I've already established that I'm willing to steal this stuff and I need it like I need to breathe. I've been molested on numerous occasions. I didn't tell anybody. And that didn't even land for me until about, I don't know, I think I was leading an OA retreat, right? And all of a sudden it, it, it came out, right? That I said, it never even occurred to me to say anything to my mom when I was driving home. It never even occurred to me. I never told my mother. I never told my father. I didn't tell a sibling. I didn't tell a teacher. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody until I got into program. I didn't, it never occurred to me to even say it out loud. It didn't even occur to me. It wasn't like, oh, I don't want to say this or I don't, these people can't be trusted. It was, mm -mm. that kind of pain is just, it's monumental. And that's what became very clear as I was working with this sponsor that I just wasn't ready to deal with that kind of pain. And as I say, that wasn't even the worst thing that happened in my house. So between the violence, my mother would throw dishes and break things and I'm getting molested. And, you know, we got belted real good in my house. The worst is that people didn't know how to talk to each other. They didn't know how to talk to each other. They didn't know how to say, hey, Patty, can we talk about what happened at the wedding? Because you said this, I thought this, and it hurt my feelings. Is that what you meant? Can we talk about this? We didn't know how to do that. So what happens then? is you have a bunch of people in pain based on what we were experiencing in our home. I was the only one that was molested. My sisters weren't. It's like we came from different families. But people don't, if you don't know how to talk about it, you end up with a lot of relationships that are all very surface driven. There's a lot of conversation about sports and weather in my family. And I like sports and weather, but I also like depth. I mean, you've spoiled me here now in the 12-step rooms. I like relationships of real depth. But to have relationships of real depth and intimacy, there has to be communication because inevitably people's feelings are going to get hurt and you have to be able to dialogue and talk about that and work it through. You know, thank God for 10 steps. I mean, 10 steps are really some of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of this whole process. That whole thing where we talk about it when there's been, when feelings have been hurt, right? But we didn't know how to do that in my family. So the older I got, the worse it got. And so finally, I'm in a situation now where I'm in Overeaters Anonymous and I can't, I can't stop eating sugar. I can't stop quantity eating. But I was so lucky that I had this brilliant sponsor because what she said to me is, you're getting abstinent is a God job. That's a God job, right? And we know that because we read the A, B, and C at the end of how it works. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. So she said, that's a God job. She said, but I do need you to do the work that I'm asking you to do. And that, that I was more than willing to do. I was delighted to do that right? The one good thing about coming from an alcoholic home, I have a healthy respect for authority figures. I do not argue with sponsors or cops. And if you ask me to do something, I will have it done. I get my work done, which is really useful. And we're going to talk about that. We'll see where it talks about that and references that in the book. But I just, I just jumped in and that I, that I could do. I could read the things she wanted me to read. I'll go to the meetings you want me to go. I'll take the commitments that you can take when you don't have abstinence. I will make the outreach. I mean, I'll, I'll show up. And I did. So again, my top weight's 200 pounds. I weigh about 130, between 130 and 135. It's usually where I hang out. 
and that is where I hang out. I was just in the doctor. It was 134 this week. Usually I'm a little closer to 130. And that's the least interesting part. That's the least interesting transformation that's happened to me here. But at any rate, okay, so I, it's it's February of 88. I get in here. I've got this sponsor. We get going on the steps. I'm still doing the sugar and the quantity eating. She says, just keep working the steps. And I do. And because all, my whole 12-step journey started in Michigan, so we were largely influenced by the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Bob Smith, right? Dr. Bob from Ohio. So I already knew I was going to be going through the steps over and over and over again. It was already going on in my mother program. I already knew that's how this was going to go. So there was no pressure. The, the cool thing about that, there was no pressure, you know, to get a four-step perfect or anything, because I knew if I didn't catch it on this run, I'd catch it about a year from now. It takes me usually about a year to get through the steps, or that's what I'd found at the time. So I'm working these steps in Overeaters Anonymous and also working them in the mother program as well. But um, I'm about two years in. And I now weigh 180 pounds. I'm 26 years old, right? And I'm 57 now. And everything started for me again in, in, in Overeaters Anonymous in February of 88. And I now weigh 180 pounds. So something's working. I'm two years in OA. I'm not abstinent, or at least, you know, that, that was, that was the, the, where I was at at the time, is that I wasn't abstinent. But something was definitely working because I've lost 20 pounds. And I don't know how it happened. And I met a family event. And one of the things about my dad is my dad had three overweight daughters and he didn't like it. And he was very vocal about it. And he'd be vocal about it publicly. So there was a lot of shame involved. Okay. But my oldest sister, he'd throw a baseball at her. She'd throw three back. So she didn't, she didn't get too much grief. He didn't give her too much trouble. My middle sister worked in my dad's business. So he wasn't going to go after her. So I was an easy target. So I felt that shame hearing these Hearing the, the, the man who should have been communicating to me loud and clear that I was a, a beautiful little princess, right? As all little girls are beautiful little princesses and all boys are strong, powerful princes on steeds. That's the message we all should have gotten. My guess is I'm probably not the only one who didn't get that, but I certainly didn't get that. Not only did I not get that, but I'm getting this public shaming behavior about being overweight. And remember, I was already dealing with shame, remember? Because now I'm, I've been molested couple guys, lots of times. I'm 14, 15 years old, those really potent years. And I just feel like I have less value because I'm overweight. That's alcoholism. That's the pathology. That's the pain, right? So with this dad, right? So now I'm two years in, 20 pounds down. I'm at a family event and I walk by my dad and he says, well, I see you've lost some weight, but you got a lot more to go. Don't let up. And I turned around and I said, no more, no more. That's it. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And everybody's like, what? Like, you know, like, oh my God. You know, because nobody talked to my dad like that. And I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I was really just meeting fire with fire. But it was never appropriate for my dad to be commenting on my, my body, my weight. That qualifies as sexual pathology in DSM 5 or 6, whatever version they're in these days. It was never appropriate. And my dad never shamed me about my weight again. And he took responsibility. He apologized when I ended up in an EDU unit a couple of years later, sat in the middle of a circle with a bunch of angry women surrounding us like, yeah, you shouldn't have done this, you know? I mean, he took responsibility, <laughs> but, but that was just his own pain, right? And what I'd later learned is that my dad had been overweight as a child and he got shamed and, and teased and stuff in school. And what he explained is that he was trying to, trying to avoid that happening for me. But see, that's the pathology. That's the insanity of alcoholism. This horrible thing happened to me in childhood. I don't want it ha to happen to my kid. So I'm going to shame. I'm going to do the very thing that happened to me in childhood to try and prevent you from having that. You, do you see what I mean? 
that's the insanity. That's the insanity. Now, the thing is, the idea that I stood up to the bully at 26 years old, and I'm still overweight, but I got to stand up to the bully and say, knock it off. Nobody can tell me that's not recovery. Nobody could say that to me. I don't get involved in the debates in the 12-step rooms here in the food program about whether or not you can work the steps if you're abstinent or not. I don't get involved with that. Now, the good news for me is this position that my sponsor had three years before the OA 12 and 12 came out, because it came out in 91, and she was telling me this in 88, the first edition, it's kind of a maroon cover, brown cover. It says there in the fourth step, so it's on page like 31, 32, it wraps around, you know, and it says, look, we think it's a good idea that if you're going to work a fourth step, that you would be abstinent before you do that. We think it's a good idea. So it's in the fourth step, right? So Three years before the book was written, my sponsor had told me in 88, it was the book, first edition of that book came out in 91. It's in the four step. It's on page like 31, 32 something. It wraps around, I know. And it says, look, we think it would be a good idea if you're going to do a four step that you would be abstinent. However, maybe if you're not abstinent, maybe doing a four step is going to be the very thing that's going to conclusively encourage you to take a third step. So it's corroborated in conference approved literature. But I'm not going to, I don't argue with people in the rooms anyway, because we all want to win, right? We're all stubborn, cranky, wounded, a lot of pain, a lot of pain behind the juice and the anger and the, you know, the, this is how it goes. There's pain underneath that. There's just too much of that. I'm just not going to argue with anybody. And they changed it actually in the second edition of that book. They took that out. But that, of course, is why I don't have the second edition of that book. All I know is you can't argue with somebody's ash. You can't argue with somebody's experience, strength, and hope. And my experience was in working the steps, even though I wasn't abstinent, under sponsor direction, doing everything that I was asked to do, worked very well for me. So it still was another 10 years before I was going to get abstinent. But what happened is um, I weighed about 155 pounds, right? So Because I've never been at 200 pounds again, ever, ever. But the thing is, is even though I'm not a 100 pounder, I've lost and gained over, it's almost 1,700 pounds. Because I had a registered dietitian have me track it once because I ended up with a major health diagnosis. So my doctor, who was a world-renowned resource on this disease that I've been diagnosed with, said, I don't know anything about diet, but I know that would have something to do with it. Go see an RD. Doctors don't know anything about food. Go see an RD. So I did. I followed direction. You've taught me well. And so I I just was doing, you know, I was following the, the directions, all the directions I was getting. And the weight was slowly coming up, but I still wasn't abstinent. But it's 2000, it's May of 2000, and I had a sponsor and I had an RD independently of each other. These two women didn't even know each other. In the same week, they said, enough with this, right? Your top weight was 200 pounds. You now weigh 155. You're not abstinent in Overeaters Anonymous, so you can't sponsor anybody. You can't be a secretary of meeting. You can't be a treasurer. You know, once in a while, somebody might let you be a timer because they figure, you know, maybe you can be trusted with a timer and a battery, but enough. I'm declaring your abstinence for you. And my RD was also a member of Overeaters Anonymous, but it came in the same week and they said, put your stake in the ground and claim a date, pick a date. My sponsor actually picked it for me. So it's May 30th. So that was my abstinence date in 2000. And I still would, would occasionally eat sugar, but I was always honest with my sponsor about it. And she was like, yep, you are going forward. So I'm and I would occasionally go in and out of the sugar, right? And as I would go in and out of the sugar and in and out of the sugar, I would lose and gain 15 pounds. I might do that three, four times a year, right? So that's how, even though I'm not a hundred pounder, that I've lost and gained over 1700 pounds. Cause I also went on my first diet when I was in junior high. So I had some of this 
you know, this routine going on before I even got here. But once I got abstinent, that stopped, right? Kind of the, the, the up and down kind of stopped, or at least it wasn't, it wasn't zigzagging and stuff in the way that it, it was. And what happened is um, it was, let me just get clear about the time here. So I'd gotten abstinent in 2000. Now it is, okay, it's the fall of 2003. So I've been abstinent for three years and a couple of months. And what happened is I, I would occasionally go in and out of sugar. I would go, you know, there would be periods of time I would just not be eating sugar. And I don't know what had happened. My birthday is at the end of October. It's October 28th. And nobody in their right mind is going to stop eating sugar before Halloween. So it was like November 7th of 2003. And I stopped eating sugar. And I made it through Thanksgiving. And I made it through uh, the Christmas holiday. I made it through my husband's Jewish, made it through the Jewish holiday, made it through New Year's, right? So I've got about six weeks or seven weeks off sugar. And this would periodically happen. You know, this was kind of how I would roll, right? So I would go in and out of sugar. And I just kind of figured, well, maybe I don't have a bottom with sugar. And, you know, I've got four different sizes of clothing in my closet. My husband, you know, he was my fiance at the time. But uh, boyfriend, fiance went through you know, different long time to uh, intimacy challenge. So we were, you know, we were had a 10 year engagement before we got married. So at any rate, wherever he was in the scheme, he always just loved me no matter what I weighed. So I just I didn't worry about it too much. So it was Tuesday, January 13th, 2004. And my husband and I had gone out to dinner and we were doing a late dinner. So we're doing like a 10 o'clock, 1030 dinner at this fancy restaurant. And, you know, we have our dinner and I don't know what happened during the course of the meal. I have no idea what happened. I don't know if the waiter looked at me cross-eyed or what. I know there was a couple in the corner kind of making out in a booth and I don't know what it was, where I got triggered, but all of a sudden I decided I wanted to have dessert. So I said to my husband, let's get dessert. And my husband like grabs the table, right? Fingers pressing in. It's like, okay. Because he knows, he knows the ride we're about to go on. He knows how this rolls. At this point, he'd been in my life for, you know, almost 10 years, nine years. We'd been friends for a couple of years and been involved. And he, he knew how this was going to go. So we order a dessert. And I'm going to pretend I'm one of those Hollywood type girlfriends who can share a dessert with my husband, right? We both got a fork and it's this really fancy dessert, you know, with all the accoutrement on top and stuff. And we start eating. And now there's a problem because he's eating more than me. And I know because I'm counting my bites and I'm counting his bites. And now I've activated that allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind that William Silkworth talks about. So now I got to get out of this restaurant because I've been off sugar for about six or seven weeks. So all of those feelings, everything that has been tamped down comes slamming through. And I, I we got to get out of this re restaurant, right? It's like, wait, waiter, check, check, right? Like, it's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. My husband never likes to ballet park. So we're out of the restaurant and I'm just trucking, right? I'm trucking to the car and I'm already planning the lie. Keeping in mind, right? Three years, three and a half years absent. I'm already planning the lie because I've got to get real deal sugar now because my husband's got sugar at home, but he doesn't eat the kind of stuff I want to eat. My husband eats dark chocolate. I can't eat any sugar unless it's got fat in it. I would never eat, I would never eat a jelly bean unless I can deep fry it. So I've got to get real deal sugar. It's after midnight now, and I'm already planning the line. I'm just trucking. Like, Come on, baby, let's go, right? And we get to the car. My hand touches the handle of his car, and I think, wow, I'm glad I don't live in a high rise. I thought, where did, 
where did that, where did that come from? And in that moment, I got powerlessness because I could no longer guarantee that if I kept this routine up with sugar, that I wasn't going to take myself out. I couldn't guarantee that anymore. Again, as we're walking to the car, I'm thinking about the lies. I'm going to tell my husband, I, you know, I'm going to drop him off and I got to explain because he's going to go in and walk the dog. You know, I got to explain why I want to go to the store and I want to get uh, tampons because I need tampons. And meanwhile, he's going to maybe put two and two together because I just got off my cycle two weeks ago. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, he might probably figure that out. And, and he's going to want to know why he can't go to the store. I mean, my husband's involved. He knows to get OB. Don't get anything with an applicator, right? I mean, he's going to wonder why all this stuff is good. And then I'm like, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but it's cysts. You know, I went to the doctor. Remember last I went to the doctor. I have cysts. You know, it might be cancer. I'm not sure if it's cancer. I don't know. Can we just, can it just, I just want to go. Like, that, I've. I haven't even gotten to the car yet. Like I'm already thinking that I'm a writer. That's my job. My job is to write stories and make you believe me, right? To lie and make you believe me. So I got this shit down. I've, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say that because I need sugar. That's the pathology. That's alcoholism. That's the insanity, right? It's not about sugar or white flour or, or being a size 16 or a size 18 or any of those things. I'm glad those things aren't in place for me anymore, but that's the smallest part of this. That's the caboose of the train, right? I got hit by the train a long time ago by the time weight became an issue. It, it, it's, it's all those things. It's that inability to be trusted, that, that inability to be intimate and honest. I mean, again, my husband knew how I rolled. Why couldn't I have even said, driving home, like, look, I've awakened the beast, you know? There's, there was, there's been, a, there's been a, a, a hibernating bear sleeping in a cave for about six, seven weeks, but I just hit it with a bat and it's awake. So if you don't mind, my sweet, I'm going to stop at the grocery store and load up. Why couldn't I do that? That's the pathology. That's alcoholism. That's the insanity because it couldn't. But I don't know what happened. I got very struck by that idea that I could kill myself. And so we went home. There was no lie. There was no more sugar eating, right? I woke up on Wednesday, the 14th of January, 2004. What did I do? I had sugar again. Why? I got a built-in forgetter. That's what I told you at the beginning of the meeting. I can have all these great epiphanies, all these powerful things. This is my second meeting of the day, 12-step meeting, right? I wake up every day and I've forgotten. And I forgot that morning and I had sugar again, got, having gotten very clear the night before that I might kill myself if I kept doing this. And then all those years on Wednesday the 15th, all those years of working the steps over and over and over again, because people always want to know, what'd you do? How to do? How to do it? All I know is by that time, I'd been through the steps in Overeaters Anonymous, not even counting what I was doing elsewhere. I'd been through the steps nine, 10, maybe a dozen times, at least nine or 10 times. And, you know, all the requisite four steps and fifth steps and, you know, and all the paying back of money. Because again, as I said, stealing was a big part of my story. I, I, all, all that stuff, all of a sudden, it all coalesced on January 15th. And the sugar compulsion was removed. And I was just continuing on along with my abstinence. I'll see where I'm at on time. That was really a miracle. That was an incredible, incredible miracle. And then as I was going on from there, um, then the, the, the rest of the, the weight came off, right? So I got to what was then a, a healthier body weight in terms of getting my, you know, my BMI. And the only reason BMI is interesting to me is because I have health issues. And um, we have a lot of autoimmune stuff in my family. 
my mother died of diabetes. My, my brother got diagnosed with diabetes. The one I'd referenced before he got diagnosed at 15 and was dead at 36 and 36. Yeah. He had it for 21 years. And it was a, it was a, it was a horrendous, awful death, right? As diabetes deaths usually are. And in addition to his diabetes, my brother, like my mother, who died in the same way, just quicker because she got diagnosed with the less serious diabetes, the type two at uh, uh, 66 and was dead at 68. But uh, both of them, you know, my, my brother had lost, by the time he died, my brother had lost both of his legs. He was living in an old person's home for the last three years of his life, was on dialysis, and then he went blind. And he said, I'm not going to live blind, take me off dialysis. And he was dead within a few days. Because in addition to his diabetes, like me and like my mother, he also had an eating disorder and had a horrendous compulsion to eat sugar. And just, he literally was losing his, his body part by part, you know, because they start with the, the the little toe and then the next two toes and then below the ankle, then above the ankle, then they start on the next leg. I mean, it just went like this, right? And he just, he couldn't stop. Couldn't stop, wouldn't stop. And that wasn't diabetes. That was his eating disorder, right? And I remember I shared that at a meeting once. And afterwards, the secretary came up to me and she said, she, she said, that was a great share, but I need to tell you, I don't think you should share that at Overeaters Anonymous meetings about your brother. And I said, I shouldn't. Why is that? She said, because you're scaring people. And I said, you know what? What's your, your name's Heather? Heather? I want to scare people. It's scary, right? This is really scary. And somehow we think that because it's sugar or it's food or it's just weight, that it's not, it's not, uh, it's not dangerous. Nancy, I bet, knows. Well, I know, I know Nancy because she's been here so much longer. She must know a lot more than me. But I know there are four people I can think of right now that I know died behind an eating disorder. I remember I used to go to a meeting. I was just talking with somebody about this. I used to go to a meeting. It was a nine o'clock meeting on a Tuesday night. I don't know if Nancy ever went. It was in Santa Monica. It was so cool. It was a one hour meeting, right? We'd get in at nine o'clock, come out at 10 o'clock. And there was a little girl there. She was 28 years old. And I remember her coming to the meeting. It was a Tuesday night meeting. And that particular night, she was having a rough time. She was talking about how she couldn't stop eating Snickers bars, you know, just couldn't stop. And so I, you know, ended up, you know, I, I knew her and you know, had been in touch with her, but I gave her an outreach call on the next day and, um, and her, her mother answers the phone and, and, you know, I asked for, her, let's just call her Jane. I asked for Jane and um, she's, oh, you know, she hands the phone to the husband and the husband reveals that Jane had killed herself that day, right? She couldn't stop eating Snickers bars. And that's not, that's not the only story, Right. I sponsored an anorexic, and as a general rule, anorexics, anorexics in particular, do better with anorexics. Once in a while, you can, a, a, a CO, or in my experience, I can, I can have some success with an anorexic. Bulimics really do, in my experience, bulimics do better with bulimics. There's just, you know, bulimics literally want to have their cake and eat it too and look good in a bikini. So sometimes only a bulimic can kind of spot the, 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 the deception that a bulimic can have going on. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, talking out of turn here. I, I'm every bit as deceptive, right? And have all the game playing and nonsense. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody here, but at any rate, so I was sponsoring this anorexic and I don't get involved with anybody's food. I follow the lead that that sponsor had given me as a CO, but if you're an anorexic and you weigh 70 pounds, you got to start eating, right? At least if, if we're working together, I mean, you gotta, there's gotta be some kind of a plan, right? For you to start feeding yourself. And she didn't, she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to eat. And so she fired me, right? And, um, and I tell her what I always tell somebody, I'll always be here, right? I'll always be here. And I can always see somebody with new eyes because, you know, somebody might've had a spiritual awakening. I don't, I don't know if they've had a spiritual awakening. I, I've had one this morning. 
So um, I can always see somebody with new eyes and I'm always going to be here. But a year later, I end up at the OA birthday party, our, our OA birthday party we do here in LA in January. And her name came up and I said, oh, you know, how is, let's just call her Mary. I said, oh, how, how is Mary? How's Mary doing? And they said, oh, didn't you hear? And I said, hear what? And they said, well, Mary died. I said, oh, what, what happened? They said, well, she starved to death, not on my watch, right? So I don't get involved with a CO's food. I suggest that people, you know, utilize professional support. And we do have, you know, we have, you know, bitching food plans in Overeaters Anonymous too, right? You know, I'm, I'm a whammer. I weigh and measure my food most of the time. Most of the time at my house, certainly not in restaurants or if I go to anybody's house. But the reason I do it is because I, I need to not have that X factor. So if I end up in a doctor's office or a healthcare practitioner or something, it just it just helps me to know what I'm eating and, you know, how I'm eating and stuff. It just, it works better for me. It's certainly not because I have an attachment to being a size, a particular size, right? You know, I, 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 was a, I was the fat girl in high school and, you know, I wear a six or a four now, who cares? This, this matters nothing. I mean, look, I'm an old broad. I'm 57 years old, right? So, I mean, this is not, this is not a thing. But I do like uh, not being in danger of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, hypertension, you know, things like that. But um, so I, 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 I'm very grateful for that, that component of Overeaters Anonymous. But that's not my issue. So weight was never my issue. Again, I'm just checking the time here. We've got five minutes before we're going to take a break. Weight was never my issue. It was never my problem even when I weighed 200 pounds, right? Food's not my problem. Tortilla chips, sugar, seeds, chocolates, right? You name it. It's not my problem. It's never been my problem. It's always been a heart issue. I do not love easily and I do not forgive easily. Those are my issues. They've always been my issues. Now they have gotten much better over time having been through these steps 50 or 60 times in four different programs. So I'm very grateful for that, but it hasn't, my problem has not been solved. Anytime I get into trouble with any of you, and especially with my husband, anytime I get into trouble, it's because I've lost touch with this. I've lost touch with my heart and you're not doing it right. And I'm, I'm, I'm acting out and we're going to talk in the next hour. We're going to talk big book, right? And I'm not following the direction that that book gives me. And I've lost sight of the fact that resentment, because resentment takes over. Because remember, resentment, just $2 word for I don't forgive you, asshole. That's all a resentment is. So whether I'm pissed off at somebody for the big ticket items or whether it's a little thing. And sometimes the little things are worse. You know, I can drop a transmission on the 405 in five o'clock traffic and I'm fine, but break a shoelace, somebody's going down, right? So it's those little things. I've really got to watch for those. I've really got to watch for those because that resentment, it, it, that, that kind of anger, it doesn't work for us. And again, these are not my good ideas. You know, good cop, bad cop. So I can always do this with sponsees. That's why I sponsor exclusively out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love all the conference-approved literature. Obviously haven't read it all, but I, I just love it here because they're very specific with direction. And I that direction has served me very, very well. It has served me very, very well. And I'm glad that I don't weigh 200 pounds anymore. But what I'm even more glad about 
I'm really glad that when I've hurt your feelings, I want to be in conversation with you and I want to listen. I'm really glad that I paid everybody back that I took money from. And the places and people that I couldn't remember, you know, I'd worked at a McDonald's and used to give away food and, you know, go home. I was in college and I'd go home with my backpack stuffed with game tickets. I mean, it's just a grace of God. I never won that Monopoly million dollars in the McDonald's game, right? Because how do you pay that back? I guess a dollar at a time, right? But I did all kinds of things like that. So I made a donation to Ronald McDonald House. Um, I did shoplifting. I couldn't remember where I'd stolen it from. So my sponsor had me making anonymous donations to places because I didn't get to go in and be a hot shot and write a check because she said, when you were stealing, you weren't going in and saying, okay, I'm leaving your store. I'm shoplifting. I got a pair of jeans and a blouse. And I didn't do that. So these were anonymous donations. I had to stand in front of my father, tell him I'd stolen from him when I worked in his business, stole from friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, college roommates, right? But because I was willing to do all that work, even before I could, was ready to put the food down, when I was ready, I was ready. And um, I am so grateful because I haven't quite gotten complete here with the intimacy thing in terms of emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy. It hasn't completely landed, but I'm well on my way. And that's what I came for, to have access to my heart. Transform on the inside, right? Do that work. The transformation happens within. It can't help but show up on your body. So let's, uh, I think it's break time. Let's take a fiver and then we'll talk big buck when we come back. Okay, I'd like to welcome back Sheila. Take it away. All right, thanks, Alice. So hope we all had a nice little break. So now let's talk big book. Let us talk big book. So my first sponsor in my mother program said to read two pages a day in the big book. She said, the big book is not a book to be read. It's a text to be studied. And so I took that direction. She said, if you do that, you're going to get through that book in about uh, 10 and a half months, 11 months. And I said, what do I do when I'm done? And she said, do it again. And then when you're done, do it again, do it again. So, and she also directed me uh, to make sure that you highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page. And I'm an academic at heart and, uh, and academically, and they, they've done studies. And you actually take in more information if you uh, are highlighting and annotating. So ideally, you know, you want your book, I think, maybe, or at least I was directed, you want your book to look something like this, right? So you've got different things that land for you, little notes, things in the margin, because it, it keeps you very actively engaged when you're reading. At any rate, it's worked really well for me. So there are, I always used to say that there were four step one chapters, right? But the reality is there's actually five. Because I don't know, I mean, the thing that I love about Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson felt so accessible to me as, as somebody that I could emulate and wanted to emulate because it was very clear that he wasn't interested in perfectionism and he didn't live a perfect life. He had some very human foibles that actually stayed with him for a lifetime. So it felt really safe. But one of the things that was really evident, it seems really evident to me is when I think about Bill Wilson is pridefulness because I don't know how you have a fellowship where Bill was sober for six months, but he didn't even count his sobriety until 
uh, June 10th, 1935, right? He'd gotten sober in December of 34 when he got connected up with Dr. Bob. And yet Dr. Bob's nightmare is not included in what is, you know, we always talk about, you know, the first 164 pages of the big book. I don't actually talk about the first 164 pages of the big book. I talk about the first 181 because I include Dr. Bob's nightmare. So for me, there are actually five step one chapters, right? Dr. Bob's nightmare, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there's a solution and more about alcoholism. But when I start working with somebody, I work with chronic slippers exclusively, not because I have a messianic complex and I have an illusion that I can do anything that Tracy can't do or Charlene can't do or Cheryl can't do, or it's nothing like that. But I do have my esh uh, as a slipper. And so um, I decided I wanted to be of service to chronic slippers. And that made sense to my sponsor. So I do it in this program and in the mother program. And I sponsor people from the big book. And the first chapter I always have people read is uh, there's a, a solution, right? And I, I have people read that chapter. Uh, no, not there's a solution. The working with others chapter, chapter seven, right? Which is the step 12 chapter of the book. And this already catches people off guard because they're thinking, wow, why am I reading that chapter? But I have them read it and I say, highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page, right? And if we start working together on a Monday, they're going to have this done by Tuesday, right? Because I always tell people we're going to start working together on a Monday and we're both going to know by Friday whether or not you're done. And it'll be, it'll be obvious to both of us, right? Because if you're working with chronic slippers, people who've been banging their head against the wall for years, it's really important in my experience. It was important in my own experience when I, this finally was coming together for me, but certainly in the experience that I've had over the years as I've sponsored slippers, you got to keep people busy. Because you got to keep you got to keep them moving enough so that this is not engaged, especially the longer we've been here. Because as we heard, you know, we heard from Nancy, and Nancy's amazing, and I am really grateful that there are people both who have long-term abstinence. I love that, right? Because she's got 44 years; she's going to be 45 in a couple of weeks here. I am so grateful that there are people who've been through marriages, births of children, deaths of children, hurricanes, earthquakes, and they haven't had to go to the food. I'm really grateful. And I think it's phenomenal, again, that there are people like Nancy who came in and got it on day one. But I got to tell you, and I know she knows this, they are a rarity. Because anytime I lead a retreat, I always ask people that. And, and there was one time there were 50 or 60 people in the retreat and nobody raised their hand. And the most I've ever had was maybe five or six people raised their hand. And that was at a big retreat. It's very, very unusual that somebody came in and for whatever reason, they were just done. It's not a moral issue. It doesn't mean anybody's more spiritual. It doesn't mean anybody's better. It doesn't mean anything like that. It, all it means is they were done. But what does that mean for the rest of us? That's all I'm saying is there has to be something in place for the rest of us. There has to be. And especially people who have been doing this for years and years and years and years and years. This then gets talking very, very loud. And the only thing that works in my experience, right, unless we're going to go to treatment, the only thing that works is to just keep somebody very, very busy. So I get them reading this chapter. They start with this chapter. So they're going to, you know, give it to them on a Monday. They'll have it read, highlighted and annotated. They're going to write for 15 minutes and they're going to call me. And there's other things they're going to do, but we're going to just start with that for now. And um, I tell them to read that chapter, but then go back to page 96 and take another look at that paragraph at the very top of page 96 read that paragraph one more time, find one more thing to highlight or annotate, even if it's the same thing you already did, double dose it, do it one more time, and then write for those 15 minutes. I'm going to read that paragraph, top of page 96. 
working with others, step 12 chapter of the book. Do not be discouraged if the, your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. That, of course, was Bill talking about himself in the third person. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Okay, now let's go back to the sentence right in the middle. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Of course, I never say to anybody it's a waste of time. Of course, we don't ever say those things. There's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of pain buried beneath a lot of anger and a lot of bravado. But of course, we never say anything like that. You don't ever use inflammatory language like firing sponsors. How do you fire somebody that you didn't hire? No, it's not about that. But what I want you to hear in that sentence, and I got to tell you, because I have this, here, here's that page. It's highlighted, annotated, and this is like, I have, you know, five or six big books, including my, you know, my third edition when I started here in the 80s. And they're all, they all look like this. And I'd had this highlighted and underlined, but this had not landed for me until I'm going through it with a sponsee because it's my sponsees who keep me abstinent, not my sponsors, right? And I read that line. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. It doesn't say we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not get sober. It says who cannot or will not work with you. So if that's what it means in terms of alcoholism, it must mean that even more so in terms of an eating disorder, right? So I always tell people, you got to give me something. You got to give me abstinence in the work or you got to give me the work, but it's not enough to give me the abstinence. I don't care if you eat beautifully and, you know, you, you put this down and you don't do this and maybe you even wham and you follow your food plan, you do it perfectly. If you're not doing the work, you're not going to be eating that way for long anyway. Not if you believe what we believe here. If you, if you subscribe to the 12-step model, you're not going to be doing that if you don't do the, if you don't work the steps. These are not my good ideas. The book says this over and over again. And I, I, I also believe what it says, you know, the big book says, don't run around and say that this is the only way to do this. Don't do that. Don't do that on our behalf. And I don't. There are lots of things that work. Weight Watchers works for some people. It worked for Jennifer Hudson. It just doesn't work for me. I have a spiritual malady. That's my issue. Remember? It's a heart issue. It's not, a, it's not, a, it, it, it's not anything else. It's, it's this, and that doesn't get addressed in those places. But I don't pick on them. I don't pick on people who get, get the surgery and the lap band and the this and the that. This is all above my pay grade. This does not have anything to do with me. I just know what I needed. But I help people see, because usually, so then they're going to write on that. And usually what people will start saying is something like, oh, if I do this, don't do this stuff, you're going to fire me. Oh, are you going to do this? And I say, mm-mm, mm-mm, no, no. What I just want you to understand, though, it seems to be clarifying in that paragraph what my job is. And my job is to help you and support you. But my job is also to work with people who are willing to do the work. So I, they know my story. And if they don't, I make sure that they then know my story, right? That I was a dozen years in Overeaters Anonymous working the steps over and over again before I got abstinent. So that it's safe for them in this relationship. Because more than anything, I just want it to be safe for people. I want them to feel safe in Overeaters Anonymous. I want the rooms to be safe. 
You know, I had a relationship with God from when I was very young. I started having nightmares behind the sexual trauma when I was five years old. And I started praying. And we were very, you know, we, I came from a real, you know, Catholic family. And we were, we were directed and, you know, to do a lot of things. But I started praying at night, every night before I went to bed, because I started having nightmares. And I had a really scary, there's not time for all these kind of stories and stuff. But uh, I, I started praying and asking God to make sure that I didn't have that nightmare again. That was how I started suppressing the, the memories. I mean, it, it was very repressing. It was very, uh, it was very conscious. So I always had a relationship with God, but what I didn't have a relationship with was you, any of you. I didn't have a relationship with people. So I can be very lonely in a relationship with God if I don't have a relationship with people. So that's why I put so much focus on my relationships with people and getting people connected because I was so alone in my childhood and I had a God. And my, I had a lot of fear with that God, but I, I had some loving people in my life. I mean, you know, my, you know, my dad had a sister. My dad's sister was a nun, and she was one of the, you know, the nice nuns, one of the sweet nuns. But she'd run away to the nunnery at fourteen when they used to let you run away to the nunnery at fourteen because she had to get out of that alcoholic household. But at any rate, I want people to know that it's safe, and they'll put down the food. That's a God job right? I'm going to support them in doing that. And I have some good ideas and I employ those good ideas in terms of little tools and little, little tricks and things like that. But I don't let people go. And I never again use inflammatory language. I say something a lot more along the lines is, I'm not sure how I can be helpful to you. I heard a circuit speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous with 51 years. And she said, what she says to sponsees who don't want to listen to her, she said, my hope for you, my hope and my prayer for you is that you one day find a sponsor that you want to listen to, right? I just want OA to be safe for people. So I want them to be honest about their food. I make it a very safe place for them to be honest with me about their food, right? They send an email and they send some other things in that email at night. Same things I still send to my sponsor in my email at night. But I just want it to be safe, right? So you, you, you don't have to lie about your food. There's a lot of lying that goes on here about their food. People are lying about their food. Or, and it's interesting to me, there are plenty of people who don't, you know, they're not, they're in Overeaters Anonymous and they're not telling their sponsor what they eat and their sponsor's not asking. Again, not my business, bless them, change me. But that doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. Because again, my issue is aloneness. I spent so much time alone in my life. I just don't want to be alone anymore. And when I write my food down, I don't commit my food ahead of time because it's just for, for whatever reason, it's just hard for me to commit food ahead of time and eat what I've said I'm going to eat. I don't know what that's about, but, um, but I do write it down at the end of the day and let my, you know, I shoot it off in this email to my sponsor and, you know, one of my sponsors in one of my food programs is, you know, she's blind. I mean, she doesn't even have to get to read it. She has to listen to it because I just want it. I want it to be safe here. I always want it to be safe because I know all of the big feelings that were going on for me and I just wasn't ready to feel those feelings. And we know sexual trauma plays in very, very heavily with eating disorders. That's why OA brought out the book, right? The sexual, you know, sexual issues are part, I don't know what the title of it. I have the book around here somewhere. My story is one of the stories in that book, but it's, so this is a huge, huge, it's a huge, huge, amount of pain. I'm, I'm 
very, very clear. There's what, 60 of us on the meeting. I've heard anywhere from 40 to 70% of people dealing with eating disorders deal with some kind of sexual trauma. Some more were, some uh, more egregious than others, right? And again, I'm not a healthcare professional, so I don't know exactly what those numbers are, but I know they're high. I know they're high enough that Overeaters Anonymous said we're going to include it as part of the book. And I just want to keep OA safe. It's one of the only prejudices being overweighted, one of the only prejudices that's still actively sanctioned in society, right? And people say it's okay to okay to do this. They make sitcoms. They build sitcoms around overweight characters, laugh and joke about them. Saturday Night Live has had how many overweight uh, comedians die, right? Somebody dies and they call up Chicago and say, send another one out, right? It's crazy. You know, I'll tell you the story before we go on here, because I was sharing this with somebody this week that I was on a, I got on a plane, you know, it was three years ago when we were all getting on planes. I guess we are now, but uh, it was a Southwest flight, right? And they announced that the, the the plane was going to be full, right? So you choose your own seat. So I, you know, get on early and there's a guy on the window and I always sit on the aisle. I'm a little claustrophobic. So I always sit on the aisle. So there's a, an aisle, there's a middle seat in between us, right? That's open. And the guy leans over and he's very well dressed, right? He's in a business suit type guy. And, and he leans over and he says to me, he says, hey, he says, do me a favor. Let's make sure that we don't get some fatty sitting between us. And I thought, huh. Do I want to get into this discussion on a four hour? No, I don't. And I just, <laughs> right. Now, do you think he would have leaned over and said, hey, let's make sure that, you know, some, 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 some black guy, right? Or some, some Irish guy who's probably going to drink a bunch of booze. Let's make sure, you know, let's make sure some, some Jewish person doesn't sit down between. Do you think he would have done that? Absolutely not. But he somehow felt it was okay to lean over and say to me, because I'm thin, he's thin, like, Let's make sure that somebody fat doesn't seem between us. That's what we're dealing with out there. So that's already happening out there. I want to keep away safe. If somebody gets abstinent, loses their weight, great. I hope that happens for you. I hope it happens for anybody who wants it. I hope it does. Because it's not good for, for, it's not good for my health to be overweight. But what's even worse for my health and for anybody's health is to feel unloved and unaccepted and uncelebrated and unvalued. So that's all I'm concerned about. And I, I'm a good channel for God, right? I'm a good channel. God does the work, right? The purpose of the book is, you know, is find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. That's what it says. So I get to just be a loving channel, right? I'm going to screw up. I'm going to do things wrong. I heard somebody say, again, somebody in the mother program, she said, you know, when I work my sponsees and by the time they get to their four step, she said, if I haven't ended up on their four step, I haven't done my job. <laughs> right? Right? But I'm not the, because you go far enough in this and you realize that, you know, the, the pain is your own, right? Anytime you're, you're pointing the finger, right? It's, it's not. You're, you're, don't miss out on finding your part in the issue. So at any rate, start people with working with others. Then we're gonna then we're gonna look at the doctor's opinion, right? We're gonna pay special attention. It's on page Roman numeral twenty nine where he talks about that psychic change, right? And Silkwick talks about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And you know, I've got a sister who's allergic to cats. You put her in a room with cats, she's gonna start snotting and snorting, right? Doesn't matter if it's calico, doesn't matter if it's tabby, doesn't matter if it's a Siamese cat. That's gonna happen. So uh, it's really important to get that clear about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The obsession of the mind is never going to go away. 
That's why we say this is a lifetime program, right? Is because that's not going to go away. The physical allergy will. You can wake it up. You can wake it up really easily. Remember, I did that in that restaurant that night. But, um, but the obsession of the mind is never going to go away. And what he says is, if you want long time recovery here, and this is what he was trying to do with Bill for a long time is to create that psychic change. He references it three pages on Roman numeral 29, 29 references it three times on that page, Roman numeral page 29, psychic change. Uh, uh, top of the page, uh, this is repeated over and over again. The repeating over and over is the chronic slipping. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. Continuing on, next paragraph. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed is able to control his desire for alcohol if he's willing to follow a few simple rules. I'm paraphrasing. Okay, and psychic change comes up one more time in the next paragraph. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. So then it becomes, as Silkworth is saying, this is what I was trying to do. This is what you got to have to stay sober. So then it becomes, well, cool. Wow, I want to know what that is. What's that psychic change? What do we got there? Well, Carl Jung is going to describe it for us. And there is a solution, page 27. Roland Hazard was the businessman who was trying to uh, get sober, had all the money in the world, everything he could do. And, and couldn't stay sober. And he goes to see Carl Jung, right? So we know he has real bread because he's seen Carl Jung. And Jung says to him on page 27, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Hazard says, Is there any, are there any exceptions? And Jung says, I've been trying to do this with you. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. And a vital spiritual experience is the same thing as a psychic change, which silk work is referencing. And Jung goes on to describe it for us. To me, these occurrences are phenomena, right? They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's a vital spiritual experience. That's psychic change. That's what's got to happen for permanent recovery. How does that happen? Through working the 12 steps. Does it happen on the first time through the steps? Not for everybody. Remember, it didn't for me. But going through over and over and over again, not going through the steps one time and then working 10, 11, and 12. That was what the New York cohort believed in, right? That was what Bill Wilson and his people thought. Dr. Bob from Ohio, remember I'm from Michigan, Dr. Bob said, no, you keep going through the steps over and over and over and over again. For a long period of time, Bill Wilson thought you only needed to work one four step. He reversed himself and he talks about it and it comes of age. But for a long time, he thought that's how it, would, it was gonna go. That, that wouldn't have worked for me. I needed to bathe in this over and over and over again before it felt safe enough. You know, here's a little stuffed animal. I, you know, I love stuffed animals, I'm like five years old. <laughs> and this is one, and I'd gotten this at some OA, you know, it's a beanie, it's one of those beanie baby things. And it's, it's like Batty, that's the character's name, right? And it's a bat and like bats freak me out. Like bat, really a bat stuffed animal? Cause I have a lot of sheep and stuff like that, but this is a bat and I love it because this was me for most of my life, right? I was like hiding and I don't, I don't have to hide. I don't, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want people to have to hide. So you've, you've got to tell me what you, you're eating, 
right? You're, you're, you're safe here. You don't need to lie about your food. If you're going to lie about something, lie about something more interesting than your food. Tell me you used to date Brad Pitt or your cousins with Julia Roberts or whatever, right? But don't, you don't need to lie about your food. You're safe here. You're safe in this relationship. You're safe in Overeaters Anonymous, but you're definitely, and sometimes it can be a little tricky out there, but you're definitely safe in this relationship with me. I want people to, to know that they are, right? So that's why you're telling me what you're eating. So then they read that chapter. Then I have them read doc, uh, uh, Bill's story. because and, and if they really believe the doctor's opinion, so again, we're two days in and we've already read two of the chapters. If they really, well, they're, we're three days in because they started with uh, working with others, remember? But if you really believe everything that, that Silkworth is telling us in the doctor's opinion, and you really believe Bill's story, I can only eat today on a lie. Any of those, all the years that I was chronic slipping, it's because there was a lie. And it's, there's only three lies. The first lie is, it's not going to bother me this time. Sugar's always been a problem, but it's not going to bother me this time. That's lie number one. Lie number two, it's going to bother me, but I'm going to be able to control it. That's always been the lie that's gotten me into trouble. It's going to bother me. I have the allergy, but I'll be able to control it. That's lie number two. And lie number three is, my life has no value. I might as well just kill myself. Might as well eat myself to death. So then we read, there's a solution, which is a very uplifting chapter because there's a solution. But then they take it into more about alcoholism, the last step one chapter, other than I have them, you know, again, read Dr. Dr. Bob's story, but um, it takes you down into the, to the depths again, right? Just in case you start thinking like, oh, maybe information is going to, you know, do it. It's going to, you know, all the, one of these other things is going to work, huh? They want to make sure you get it because Bill tried all those things for us. Bill tried a bunch of things to, to get sober, right? He thought health problems, financial problems, strong uh, resolution, sense of impending doom, potential suicide, escape from life, vacations, retreats, elite treatment centers. He was in Towns Hospital. It was the third time before it finally took. That was the most elite uh, treatment for addiction in the world, in New York. Uh, Self-knowledge, fear, hopelessness. Uh, you know, that, that, that worked for Bill, but that doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, you know, skid rows all over the world, people are hopeless and it's not working for them. So at any rate, then we move on to uh, step two, right? the uh, We Agnostics chapter. I have people read that. We spend two days on that. The first day, you read the chapter, highlight, annotate, write for 15 minutes. And I want them to tell me about the God or higher power that they are imagining, whatever they have in place. And if people are agnostics or atheists, that's not a problem, right? You know, God, good orderly direction, uh, God, group of drunks. You know, there, I, I heard a, a guy sharing a meeting once that for him, G-O-D was get outdoors. And he was an atheist and he was a long time absent member in Overeaters Anonymous. And he was a member of the uh, Audubon Society, right? Was just a, a huge hiker and things like that. And again, for him, God was G-O-D, get outdoors. Um, you know, I heard somebody share one time, dying in a meeting said that for him, uh, God was uh, the electrical outlet in the wall because if he took his wife's hair dryer and dipped the plug in water and then stuck it in the wall, he would experience a power greater than himself. So again, right, it's whatever idea you are using that you have in place now for God. So that's what they do on day one. The next day when they read the chapter again, I want them to write what they would need to have to feel safe enough to turn it over to, right? Then we move on to step three, which is uh, from 58 to the bottom of 63, okay? And I say, go back and make sure that you read, pay special attention to the paragraph at the top of page 63. 
That's my favorite paragraph in the big book. I'm going to read it. Uh, again, top of 63. When we sincerely took such a position, the antecedent in the paragraph before is that God's in charge. We're not. That's where we're directed that God's the director, right? We're the agent. You know, we're the ones that are just going to be doing, you know, whatever it is that God the director wants. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. That's a pretty powerful. Those are pretty powerful promises. Don't let anybody kid you, right? About nine-step promises. This book is filled with promises. I always say in AA, it's too bad we don't drink anymore because it would be a great drinking game, right? Like everybody pull out your big book, turn to a page. Whoever finds the promise first, I guess, because you're an alcoholic, you get to drink twice, right? But um, the book is full of promises. And it tells, and, and, but, and, and that's what the wonderful thing, and this is what I love to introduce to people. And I love to have it introduced to me because as I said, I can read something that I've had highlighted and annotated for decades and it hasn't landed. And I know, because we'll see when we get to the 10th step, I want to hustle through, make sure we get us through here, um, through all the steps. I, there's a 10th a, a step that it talks about on page 84. And again, I had never done, I was in, I was in year 22. 22 of sobriety, seven or eight of, of uh, abstinence. And I wasn't doing that 10 step that way. And somebody pointed it out to me, somebody with less time pointed it out, right? So, I mean, th that's what's so great. And that's what we all do for each other. There's no hot shots here. We're all just, you know, we're just siblings and we're just reminding each other. It's so glorious, right? So that's what we want to be. Well, that's what I'm in love with is the glory. All right, so now, now we get to do a four step, okay? And so the four step part of the book, from the bottom of 63. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. Listen to the language, right? Vigorous action, the first of which is personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted, okay? And there's three parts to a big book inventory. Oh, so before I do that, we have a couple of things. Um, so Alice, would you mind throwing up there in the chat the is the original how it works? We're just going to take a 60-second pause here. We're going to go back to page 59, and she will put this up on screen sharing. It's the original how it works. And so the 99 men and the one woman at the time weighed in because Bill wrote, you know, the Bill did all, wrote all the pages, right? Bill in the height of his hubris actually wrote, you know, the, the chapter to the wives, despite the fact he was married to a woman, right? Who'd been dealing with him as an alcoholic. He, he didn't let Lois write the chapter. He wrote the chapter, the Al-Anon chapter, the alcoholic wrote the Al-Anon chapter. I love Bill's prideful hubris, right? It just makes me feel safe in, in knowing that I'm lovable and holy and, you know, in the midst of my character defects. But at any rate, we see some things here and I'm just going to have you advance it a little bit there for me, Alice. We're going to get down here. So, uh, and we're just going to kind of look at some of the, the language here. And let's just keep going until we get up to the steps here. Okay. So, so some of the things, and, and keep going here, we're going to get specifically a little bit there. Let's, let's, let, that's good. So one of the things that you'll see, right, and you can put this in, in, in Google, or I don't know if they've got this, if they're going to put this in the chat, these documents, they might put them in the chat so that you can have them. But um, the, the, the hundred, the first hundred came to Bill and they said, oh, Bill, man, you're going to have to back off. Your, your, how it works was just so intense because Bill's, Bill's thing was much different, right? So let's look at step seven, for instance. 
first of all, Bill kind of takes it out of the royal we and he puts it in the you, right? So seven was humbly on our knees, asked him to remove our short shortcomings, shortcomings, holding nothing back. Okay, let's just keep going here. This is a little bit easier if I'm, let's just keep going. We're going to take it all the way toward the end. Okay, so here we go. And stop right there. Thank you very much, Alice. You may exclaim, right? So no, no more, no more of the what we have here. Uh, many of us exclaim, no, 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 no. You may exclaim, what an order! I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us, uh, we are not saints. Point is, we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. Our description of the alcoholic, chapter of the agnostic, etc. A, B, and C. Listen, how it's different compared to how it is in, in our books now. That you are an alcoholic and cannot manage your own life that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism, that God can and will. Look at the next line. If you are not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. So this was very, very intense. And you'll see when you go back again, we, we don't have time to do this all now, but you'll see how it's much different than how it is now, and that was because Bill very reluctantly let them work with him and kind of massage it and soften it up because they were saying, Bill, 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 you're going to scare people away. But Bill's idea was very strong and powerful and adamant, like, you got to do this. You got to do this thing, you know? And that's what I love and I feel throughout the book and experience. And I can lovingly hold hands with a sponsee and say, I know, I don't want to do all this stuff either, but oh my goodness, it tells us, right? Good cop, bad cop, good cop, bad cop, right? Aside from the fact my sponsor will always say, I'll always be your bad cop. If you ever want to tell a sponsee to do something, tell them that your sponsor told them to do it. You be the good cop, I'll be the bad cop. But I love it because when, if I have responsibility, I have some power. If I don't, I have none. So there's three parts to the big book inventory. So Alice, thank you. We're done with that now. So we're just going to take a quick look at the first page of the, the uh, inventory attachment. If you just throw that up on screen share. So again, there's the resentment part, there's the fear part of the inventory, and then there's the sex inventory. And, and again, I think all these things are going to be attached in the chat so you guys can access these documents. But we're just going to take a peek here. And we just want to look at the fourth, the magic fourth column, right? So the, um, the inventory, again, it's from the bottom of 63, and we complete it at the end of that chapter, which is page 71. Yep. Okay, so on page 65, okay, I don't know if she's putting this up here, but at any rate, so if you've got your, if you happen to have a big book handy, otherwise I'll describe it and it looks like it's coming up here. Okay, great. Thanks, Allison. Pull it up and just pull it up a little bit more. Okay, good. That's perfect. That's fine. Thanks, Alice. Okay, so this is what you've got going. That's ideal. This is what you've got going on. And again, this is just a Word document, right? Or, or not Word, Excel or something, something that I know nothing about, right? And somebody had, you know, people always kind of do these when I do retreats and stuff. This is one of the best ones. So at any rate, see, there's four, there's four parts. And we see it on page 65. You've got the three columns. And the, the fourth column is described in prose on page 67. But I'm resentful at. And do you see how this is a little, the thing that I dig about this, it's, it, it doesn't have a lot of room, right? And you see that on page 65. You know, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown, the cause, his attention to my wife, et cetera, et cetera. There's not a lot of stuff. Because a big book inventory doesn't want you to have a story. It takes the story out of it. You don't want a story. As a 12-step person, you don't want a story behind your resentments. Remember, your resentments are, I'm pissed off at you, and I don't forgive you. You don't want, you don't want a long story. You know, I've, I've done those kind of inventories that took hours and hours to read. 
it doesn't take hours and hours to read a big book inventory, even if somebody's got a lot of material. It really doesn't. Not if you keep the story out of it. You want to keep the story out of it because there's only three purposes of story. Aristotle gave us the first purpose 2,800 years ago, right? It's to create catharsis. It's the reason that people go to horror movies. I, I mean, I don't go to horror movies. Never did. I mean, I did when I was a kid, but I don't anymore. Can't believe I did when I was a kid. Like I needed that additional trauma. It's because it, it, in, in the middle of the afternoon, right? You're all in a theater together when we all used to be in theaters together. And you, you know, the monster jumps out or the guy with the knife, yeah, you know, and you experience, ah, you experience that catharsis. It all gets released co collectively. That's the first purpose of the story. Second purpose of the story, purpose here, you know, in Hollywood, right? I, I worked in the entertainment business. It's to entertain. It's purpose of story. But the third purpose of story, and this is particularly relevant for us as compulsive overeaters, bulimics, anorexics, alcoholics, any addict type, right? The purpose of story is to get you on my team, to get you on my team. But I don't want you on my team. I don't want you on my team because if you're on my team, I'm the good guy. And those men who molested me, for instance, they're the bad guys. But I don't want you on my team because if I'm good and they're bad, I have no power. If I'm not seeing my part, so I'm resentful at, let's just call him the second one, the worst. I'm, let's call him Marvin. I'm resentful at Marvin because molested me when I was a kid a few different times. Column three, does it affect my self-esteem? Of course, personal relationships, for sure. Materially, yes. I think that was definitely connected up with what happened to me academically in school and college and stuff, emotionally, for sure. Security, uh-huh. Sexually, you think, right? And fourth column, where am I selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking and frightened? I don't pay too much attention to self-seeking. It seems too close to selfish. I just kind of want to keep it simple. Where am I selfish, dishonest, and fearful? Well, it's easy to see where you'd be fearful if you were molested. Where it became clear, where it was pointed out to me by my loving sponsor when I read my fifth step to her, that I was making everybody pay the price for what those men had done to me when I was a kid. I certainly made every man in my life pay the price and some women too. I certainly made my mother pay the price too. A lot of people, all of you were paying the price because I was hurt and I didn't have a voice for the hurt. I didn't know how to get it out. So then it got covered up with anger. Anger is always a smokescreen. There's always something more potent and more vulnerable beneath anger for all of us. And I was making everybody pay the price. And I was certainly not showing up and doing that which God would have me do because I was still caught up in that pain. That's selfish. And then it was dishonest because, again, the resentment is I just don't forgive you. And my sponsor gently asked me if there was anybody that I needed to be receiving their forgiveness. Had I hurt anyone where I wanted forgiveness? Of course I had. I said, but I haven't molested anybody. She said, that's not what I asked. I asked if you want to be forgiven anywhere in the world. And I said, I do. She said, then is it dishonest for you to not forgive Marvin? And that made sense to me, right? And it landed. So it landed right away. So I didn't get abstinent right away in Overeaters Anonymous. But I'll tell you what landed is I did get free of the resentment behind this pathology. I got, I got free years before I got abstinent. So I was glad that I, I wasn't carrying that around. I was still carrying around the shame and the self-hate. But I wasn't pissed at those men. That's a miracle. And there's a great story, but we don't, have, we don't have time for it. I'll tell you a story. I could tell you a story that blew your mind in reference to that. Because, I've, I've, because I sponsor men and women in this program and in the mother program, I've sponsored two men who were molesters. One was a serial molester. And I listened to his fifth step, right? Just talked to him actually yesterday. 
yesterday or day before, right? I mean, he's still, he was somebody I'd taken through the steps. It's amazing. At any rate, so that's what we've got, right? So there's the, the resentment inventory. There's the fear inventory, which is really cool. And then the sex inventory. Okay. And so then we get to step five. And step five is from page 72. Uh, to the bottom of page 75. And there's a paragraph at the bottom of 75 where it suggests, right, that after you read a fifth step to a sponsor or somebody or whomever, whom, whoever you choose to give away your, your fifth step to, some people choose to give it away to therapists or to uh, 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 religious people or spiritual people, etc. things like that, right? It suggests that when we come home, you know, uh, take the book down and, and make sure that you've, you know, you've, you've done solid work up to this point because we're building uh, an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last, right? That's, there's another promise right there. I actually got a brand new big book and I'm going through and I'm highlighting it. I'm going, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going cover to cover and I'm going to highlight every single promise in the book. I'm going to read the book from cover to cover. And uh, it's just kind of fun to see. There's just all kinds of promises in that book and I'm doing one specific highlighting color. Okay. All right, so then we have step six and seven on page 76. They get a whole two paragraphs and actually <laughs> step six doesn't even get that much really. And step seven gets the, you know, the my creator prayer. But the thing that, then again, this was something that landed as I was going through and working with sponsors because I didn't do this in the beginning. But in the seventh step prayer, you know, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Right? Third step prayer doesn't end with an amen, but the seventh step prayer does. But how can I give over the good and the bad to my creator in the seventh step prayer if I haven't identified it? So when I have people doing steps six, I have them do a list of their character defects and then I, however many defects they come up with, they have to come up with that many assets. And it's always harder for somebody to come up with assets than it is to come up with defects, which is yet another defect, right? Whether it's low self-esteem or pridefulness or false pride, whatever, right? But so that we get balance, because we're just seeking balance at this point, you know? We just want to be balanced out. And then I, so however many they have on the list, then I'll have them identify their five defects, uh, their five default character defects, and their five default character assets and want to love and celebrate all of them, right? It's, it's a miracle to me that I can look in a mirror and I can identify. And for the most part, my default character defects kind of stay the same. Certainly anger, uh, low self-esteem, um, procrastination, judgment. I'm not sure what the other one is right now. At any rate, so that I can look in a mirror and I can identify those and I don't hate myself. That's what I came for. That's so much more interesting than being a size six. It's so much more interesting, you know? So that's what we were doing on six and seven. And we get to step eight and nine, right? And those are happening from the middle of page 76. And the big book says, I made my eight step list when I took my four step. So that means every name on my four step list is gonna be on my eight step list. So that means Lenny and Marvin. The, acronym, uh, the, the pseudonyms for the, the men who molested me, they were on my, my eight-step list, right? And I said to my sponsor, I get to the nine-step, and I said, wait, 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 wait. I owe them an amends. She said, of course you don't owe them an amends, right? It wasn't a fair fight. He was 50, you were 10. Of course you don't owe him an amends. You're not responsible for the fact that he'd done that to you. But you are responsible for the fact that you hadn't forgiven him. 
For that, you are responsible. So she had me write a letter. She said, don't worry, you're not going to send it to him. I'm not going to send, I'm not going to do that. I can't remember. They weren't deceased at the time. They obviously are now. But she said, there's four parts to a letter. The first part is, right? And it's just, and just keeping it very simple. Because again, I don't need a story here either. But it's, uh, dear Marvin, I forgive you for having molested me. Part two, please forgive me for not having forgiven you for 15 years for having molested me. Third part, she said, write something nice about Marvin. We're all more than our worst moments. And fourth part, she said, sign off as high as you can go. So sign off, love Sheila, if you can. If you can't, sign sincerely, cheers, best, good wishes, right? But just sign off as high as you can go. And then she had me put a copy of the letter. She wanted a copy herself that she was going to put in her God box. And then she had me put a copy in my God box, okay? Then we get to, right? We get to page 84, which is where the big book sees a tenth step as something you do throughout the course of the day, right? It's a spot check. The big book actually describes the 11th step as both what you do at night and what you do on awakening. Most people think of 11th step big book and they talk about the whole on awakening thing, page 86 through 88 blitz. But it actually talks about an 11th step is actually what you do at night as well. And it doesn't matter. And don't get involved with the, you know, with people who want to discuss that and debate that, right? Because they shifted it around when, when, when the 12 and 12 came out, 12 years later, 13 years later, was it 12 or 13? Uh, 52. Right. So it would have been 13 years. Now. But in on page 84, and this is your get out of free jail card. Pay attention to this. Okay, so page 84 in the middle of the thing says this, this thought brings us to step 10. So this is after the ninth step promises, right? This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests what suggests is in italics, right? <laughs> oh, actually, it's not step 10 is it, other places it is they have suggestion in italics. None of this, none of this, none of this stuff is like suggestion. Just, just think of it as direction. It, it, it is the easier, softer way. But do your thing, right? Bless you, change me. Do your thing. I always make sure my sponsees are clear that I'm going on the assumption that you've gotten my red rowboat. Because if you're drowning, any boat can save you. Blue boat, red boat, purple boat, green boat. Any boat in the harbor can save you. But if you got in my boat, you got in a red rowboat. And presumably, you got in my boat because you want what I have. So if you want what I have, I'm assuming you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. And if you decide you don't want what I have, no problem. I'm in bad days. I don't. But you don't need to jump back in the water if you decide you don't want. I'm going to row you up alongside uh, uh, Betsy's boat or, or Jamie's boat or Rosalie's boat, right? I'm going to hold your hand while you're getting on their boat, right? Maybe you're getting on, maybe you're getting on Tracy's catamaran. She's going to catamaran you away. I don't know what catamarans do. She's going to do it. I'm going to blow you kisses as you're being catamaraned away. And I'm going to hope that you're going to remember what I talked to you about with outreach calls, that you're building a community here. So you don't have to be alone and that you're going to give me a call once in a while, right? Because you just don't have to be in pain anymore and you don't have to be alone. And here's the get out of jail free card. Anytime I'm off, I go to this paragraph. This thought brings us to step 10, middle of the page, 84, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Here it is, There's four steps. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. So those are the things. Did, did those sound familiar? You know what those are? It's fourth column of resentment inventory, right? And including the resentment, which is the inventory you're in. 
But I always say to people, anytime you get off the beam, anytime you get off the beam, there's four steps. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. God makes apple sweet. That's my little acronym for it. God makes apple sweet. Those are the four steps. God, ask God to remove the shortcoming, whatever it is that's showing up. M, God makes. M, share it with another man or woman, right? Pick up the phone, call somebody. Hey, Donnelly, uh, it's Sheila making a quick 10-step call. You got a minute? Yeah, sure. What's up? Oh, I just have some fear coming up. Oh, Sheila, what's the fear around? Oh, Donnelly, you know, I don't even want to get into the story. Thanks for listening to me, too. I just want to do that second part of that, you know, the four-step process. Thanks. Bye. See you at the meeting on Wednesday, right? Click. Share it with another man or woman. God makes apples. A, amends. Make amends if necessary. If I'm lucky and I've caught it early enough and I managed to keep my mouth shut, right? I don't say something or do something where I own amends. Yippee for me. I get to skip, skip that step. And the fourth one is resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. God makes apple sweet service. And the woman who pointed this out to me said 12-step service doesn't count. Why? Because 12-step service, you're going to get a benefit. Go out and do something where nobody's going to benefit. And don't tell anybody you did it either. So I like to pick up trash. I, you know, pick up the dog doo-doo from other people who walk their dogs and don't pick it up. I don't get that. But um, I get to do those kind of things. I get to unload the, the, the drainer, right? Not bug my husband about it. Maybe take out the trash, maybe not. But I get to do something, a service that isn't 12-step service. Those are the four steps, right? And step 11. So again, step 11 starts on page 85 and finishes on 88. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. If you are not meditating on a daily basis, you have not gotten what you came for yet. If you're not. And as far as asking, praying only for the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out, if I'm not willing to pray for God's will, the only appropriate prayer is to pray for trust in God, because that would be the only reason that I don't want to pray for God's will, is that I don't trust God yet, right? And for me to trust God, it's all about how do I trust all of you? Again, I can't have a, a solid relationship with God if I don't have a relationship with you. And I know because I had a relationship with God for a long time and I was still alone and in pain and angry and eating and causing a lot of damage out in the world. So it's all about, it's all about those two connections and how those come together. Uh, which makes sense, right? Because the big book says that I have a spiritual malady. My problem is with God. The 12 and 12 says... I have a problem with all of you. That's what it says, right? So, and th they're definitely linked up for me. So that's step 11. And then lo and behold, we are back to chapter seven, working with others. And I have the person read this chapter again, one more time, but now they see it differently because now they're seeing it from the perspective of sponsorship. But I, of course, would have already, I've already gotten them sponsoring. I get people sponsoring after a month of time. I get them going. And um, sometimes it's, they've, you know, it, it, it depends because it's at some points we slow the process down. As a general, it doesn't take more than three or four months for me to do this with somebody to take them through these steps at this point. It depends how much damage they've done that ends up on a four step, which of course then is going to show up on an eight step list. And then we're going to be making some amends. So um, yeah, but they, they read that chapter and they get to that paragraph at 96 and they have an understanding now about why it is they need to work with people who will work with them, right? And that's, uh, that's, that's how that goes. That's what I do when I'm working with people. And uh, it is time for our, our second break. So we got a fiver before we come back.
Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is a time to ask questions. And I see we have a hand raised. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. It's Awen. Awen, thank you. Yes, I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. My question to uh, Sheila is, uh, you gave a great four-step guide how to write an amends letter. Could you go over those four steps again uh, a little more slowly? Sure, sure. I'll say it one more time. So the first one is ask God to remove the character defect. Or no, sorry, I'm, I'm lost here. Sorry, I'm on the 10th step. Uh, I forgive you for the bad thing you did to me, right? So I forgive you for the crappy thing you did. Second thing, please forgive me for not having forgiven you. That's my responsibility part, which was particularly relevant when I was talking about men who molested me because I, need I needed to find a foothold in there. So I forgive you for the horrible thing you did to me. Please forgive me for not having forgiven you. Third part, write something good about the person. We're all more than our worst moments. And the fourth part then, Ewan, is um, sign off as high as you can go. Love Ewan. Sincerely, cheers best, right? So I forgive you. Please forgive me for not having forgiven you. Second part, write something nice about him, Ewan, and then sign off as high as you can go. And there's no story there because what I want to get going, Ewan, is that kind of flow in my life, right? So like anytime anybody does anything, it's like, oh, the minute I want to hold on to it and hold a grudge, I've been locked in and become part of the problem. When you think about it, because the book says that resentment is fatal for us, and remember resentment is I don't forgive you, what the big book is telling me is forgive everybody of everything all the time, which sounds completely radical, but it says that over and over again, that we know this is completely radical, what we're asking you to do here, but we're just telling you, this is what you got to do. You can call it a suggestion if you want, but if you don't know how to swim and you fall in a pool, I suggest you start moving your arms and your legs. It's that kind of a suggestion. So it's very, very clear, right? And that's just a, that's just a really good one for me to remember. You know, I just don't, I don't want to hold anybody bound. I don't want to pay the price. I've already paid enough of a price in my life. I've paid a very high price for stuff that had nothing to do with me that wasn't my fault at all. I don't want to pay any more price for stuff that I'm unwilling to do. You know, yeah. Oh, and just so you guys, I put it in the chat. So Alcoholics Anonymous makes their uh, big book, their 12 and 12 and their daily reader um, available for free or you can get it on PDF, right? I, I always want people to have a hard copy so you can highlight and annotate and stuff. And it's also, they have an auditory version, right? So again, that's particularly relevant for that sponsor of mine who's blind. You can access all that stuff. The links are there in the chat. But yeah, AA World Service out of New York recommends that if you're ordering literature, find your local intergroup. Put your literature there as a general rule. Otherwise, you can get it from World Service or OA, but you pay more through OA. Nancy has her hand up. You have a question, Nancy? Yeah, I've got a couple of them. <laughs> uh, one of them is, my name is Nancy Beecham. I'm a compulsive overeater who's been abstaining for 44 years from Los Angeles, California. Nancy. And I wondered, Sheila, if you could give us some practical situations of after you began to work the steps, although you did elude that it was kind of surface and quick at first, of how, like for instance, if you were walking down the street today and you hadn't been vaccinated and a bunch of your neighbors walked out on top of you without masks, would you react differently now than you did before? Like are re your reactions to things, are they different now as they were before you worked the steps? Like some changes, in your life about 
anger and resentment and that kind of thing. And then in your personal life, are you, you talk so much about being distanced. Can you tell us about how you have improved and the type of intimacy and connections that you're able to make a little better now? Like, tell us some of the things that working these steps has done for you that bring you joy and about the happy, joyous, and freedom in your life. Sure. So in terms of the, the, the first question, first of all, I don't know who's been vaccinated or who's not. So unless people are yammering on about who's been vaccinated or not, that, that, that's somewhat of a, a non-issue. And I have to tell you, it was always kind of a non-issue for me. For whatever reason, I didn't have any fears coming up ever around this pandemic. I just didn't. I always did a, a, a process at night where I was you know, cleaning out my nasal passages with saline water and my husband's a healthcare professional. I just didn't have that issue. But let's say something's coming up, some gremlin thing comes up. Would I respond differently today? Probably. But it's funny. I was, it's funny you're asking this question because I, you know, I was on an, a meeting this morning and there were a couple of people with, you know, again, people with you know, 30 something years of sobriety were talking about how they still sometimes have those wingnut moments. And um, I, I don't, I, I, happily, I've, I've kind of gotten past a lot of that. But if I don't get past it, I'll tell you what, if I make a mess, I clean it up. So I don't know how I would respond if something were going on. I'm probably going to respond much differently, if nothing else, because I know I'm going to both have to clean it up. And especially <laughs> if, if someone's really a jerk, there's nothing worse than having to make an amends to a jerk. So um, and also being very conscious that jerk baton gets passed from person to person to person, including getting passed to me when I'm the one who's the jerk. So I just, I, I probably, for the most part, I am going to respond differently. But if I don't behave like a woman of real elegance and really a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous, then I'm going to clean it up. And then, and in terms of intimacy, oh, of course things have changed. I mean, everything has really changed. I, I, you know, I'm the only one in my family who goes to 12-step programs, and I'm not the only one who qualifies. I'm not the only one who had issues with food. I'm not the only one who had, uh, you know, drinking. Um, you know, we've got some heavy drinkers in my family, and we've got some people who are, you know, clearly alcoholics. I had a 21-year-old nephew who was shot to death in Flint, Michigan, behind a drug deal that gone, went bad. And we knew it was a drug deal that went bad because if somebody's coming to steal your stereo, they don't shoot you 17 times, right? But I know how to be with those people. I know how to be with everybody in my family now. And would it make it easier if they were going to 12-step meetings? Of course it would. Whenever I go home to visit family, I always go to a lot of meetings. I go to a lot of meetings anyway when I travel. I go to meetings because I because I feel the love there. I, I go to meetings because I, it's always been the carrot that's drawn me to the meetings. I really haven't been here out of fear since the beginning. I just, I felt your love. I feel your love. Why would I want to miss out on that? But when I go home, again, I go to a lot of meetings and my family will often... You know, sometimes people will say like, why do you still go to those meetings? You know, you're not fat anymore. You've been sober a long time. Why do you go to those meetings? And I think, well, because of you, frankly, right? But I don't say that. I, I practice restraint of uh, tongue and pen. It's not pen and tongue. And um, so I know how to keep my mouth shut. But I just wish we could go deeper in terms of the relationships. But the thing is, what this whole process has allowed me to do over and over and over again is let it be. I mean, I'm very grateful for Al-Anon. I don't know how anybody works any 12-step program without Al-Anon because Al-Anon is the place that taught me, just let them be. Can you just let them be? And, and, I just, and I just meet people where they are. 
And I don't have any idea that I'm on some spiritual hilltop because I'm doing this. It's like my husband reminded me once when I, he said, just remember, precious, you go to all those 12-step meetings because you need them. So it's nothing to, you know, to say like, oh, well, I do this. I've got this going on. It's not. It's just, I, all of a sudden, I'm okay in my skin. And because I'm okay in my skin, I can let you be okay in your skin. And I wish I had deeper relationships with a lot of people in my family. But we, we, we can't because we get to a certain point and they just, they can't, they're afraid. And, 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 and emotions are hard. And, you know, when my mom died, my one sister said, you know, I said something about it was the anniversary and I just, you know, called her, oh, you know, I'm crying, you know, it's a horrible day. You know, I've been crying all day. You, same thing with you. She said, oh no, you know, I, I do anything I can to avoid that. And again, not, not, not my business, but that wouldn't work for me. I want access to my feelings. I'm an artist. I, I need access to my feelings. And um, I just meet people where they are. Where I'm still challenged somewhat, Nancy, is um, sexual intimacy. My husband and I have never really had a happy, joyous, and free sex life. It's gotten much better, and we can talk about it. But there, there's still some, you know, some work to be done there. But where I really got, where that really shifted for me is I sought out professional support. And I'd, I'd had lots of experience with lots of therapy with different therapists, men and women, but I'd never had a black therapist. I'd never had a black male therapist. And I ended up with a black male therapist in 2016. And because he was a black man, unlike the white men who'd molested me, I was able to, through the course of however many months it was we were working together, to get freed up. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, I'm awake, I'm alive, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a woman, right? And I got access to it but then found that I wasn't the only one in my marriage who, who had sexual issues. I thought it was all me, but my husband had issues because water rises to its own level. So, you know, but now we can talk about it and, you know, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, a step back. I mean, it's just, it's a glorious dance. The thing is because I've got access to my voice and I got access to my heart and I know what to do if I do it wrong, that's everything. That's everything that I never had. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, I actually have a question. It's Sherry. Talking about the fourth step, I'm really interested in the not telling the story and not because then you have the buy-in, as you were saying. I've actually had an experience with a sponsor and I've, I've had things kind of both ways. I did have a sponsor who said, I want to hear everything. I want to hear the story. And the reason for that is because I think uh, not that this isn't the case for men as well, but certainly for some women, maybe a lot of women, we sort of were silenced a lot and not able to be heard. And that to have somebody actually really hear you. What do you think about that idea in terms of the, you know, because I'm, I'm just kind of been working on a fourth step and I'm kind of interested in, in both and I, I really am interested in what you have to say and just what your thoughts are on that, if you're willing to share. Sure. No, of course. No, of course. No, I've, I, it, it all has value, Sherry. The only correct answer to a sponsor is yes. So if a sponsor in front of me says, I want you to do your four step this way, I do it that way. If my sponsor wants me to do that OA workbook again, right? I've done that, you know, two or three times. If they want me to do that again, I do that again. If they want me to do a, a prose inventory, I've filled a notebook and, and read those kind of uh, fifth step to sponsors. I've listened to those kind of fifth steps, right? It, it all works. It's all holy work. 
you know, there's the Hazelden 170 question. I mean, you know, it all works. I just do whatever is asked of me. The thing that I like about the big book inventory, though, I mean, there's a there's a guy here in in Los Angeles who puts on workshops and and they're for anybody from any 12 step discipline and people from all, you know, go to those workshops. I, you know, it doesn't call me. I've been there and, you know, I dig him and good for you. Do your thing. I, I get a little concerned about, you know, money and people doing paid 12 step work. But again, not my business. And I don't participate and I don't do that. But his his theory is, is that unless it takes 18 hours to, to, to read your four step, you haven't done a deep enough four step. Well, I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a second. That's not been my experience. And how do you argue with somebody's experience? You know, and remember, there's nothing, there are no rules here. There's not anytime anybody's coming at you with anything and saying it goes this way, say, gosh, I must have missed that. Where's that one written down? You know, just it's it's it, it's a gentle process. So whatever, if you if this is working for you and it's coming up, and I loved what you said and the voice and all that stuff. It, it's all true. I do remember showing up at a sponsor's house and she was a psychologist, interestingly enough. And I remember showing up and I had a notebook and I was about an hour, hour and a half in and she find, she said, oh, that's it. I can't listen to anymore. I can't take anymore. You don't need to read the rest. Now that was, that was hurtful. I, I don't remember being hurt by that. And, and I don't even remember being pissed off by it, but I just, I, it's only now as I look back and I don't even know, you know, where our relationship went from there, but I don't think that's the way to play it, right? <laughs> but um, but whatever you're doing, it can work, and just you know let let yourself be guided, and you can do you can do this deep one that you're doing, and then decide you're also gonna, you know, you're gonna just kind of put together a, a, a big book one, right? And just see if if you get it down to bare bones. Talks about you know an inventory is you know we're 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 looking at it, and again we can kind of go back here to the language, but it it says you know you wanna you want to. Um, we took stock honestly. We searched out the flaws of our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. We considered it common manifestations, right? So that's that's what's showing up in terms of the third column. But but if I'm if I think about an inventory, if I'm going into a drugstore and I'm going to count all the Vaseline's on the shelf, well, I don't need to turn it over and read all the ingredients of Vaseline. I don't need to read where it was made and what's the website for the company. I don't need all that. All I'm doing is counting. So the big book inventory is, is what really lands for me. It's what I ask people to do. But if a, a sponsor asks me to do anything else, it's like, yes. Because anytime right. I'm doing exactly what my sponsor asked me to do, I'm working steps one, two, and three. Fair enough. Thank you. Rosanna. Thank you, Sheila. I, this is getting back to something that you talked about in the beginning and then along the way about sexual abuse, sexual victimization, and eating disorders going hand in hand so much. And one of the things that has been a theme in my relationships and has come up, of course, in doing the steps and doing an inventory is that a number of times I have, and I'm very inexperienced with men, extremely inexperienced with men, but I have been raped and sexually abused and sexually harassed. I was in the military for a long time. And I've had experiences where men have misinterpreted my actions or my expressions of my feelings for them. And you talked about this when you said, you know, every, every little girl wants to be their daddy's little princess. And every little boy 
you know, wants to be the prince in their parents' eyes and things like that. And I'm just wondering how, if, if you have experience with that, either your own or with Fonsi's, how much of that, like the question, one of the questions that came up for me when you talked about that was, you know, how much of that do I reveal or get into if I'm feeling like I need to make an amends for a relationship that where somebody thought that I was interested in them sexually, but I was, what was really going on with me psychologically and emotionally was that I wanted them to do for me what my father didn't. I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure this out in terms of how this works on the screen. Who, who, what is the name of the person who just was asking the it's, question? It's me, I can do that. I don't know if my video will sh show up. What, what's your name? Rosanna. Rosanna, Rosanna. Oh no, that's fine, sweetie. You you show yourself or sh not show yourself. I just couldn't. I'm see here. You know, yeah, I just I, I you know you just had a very vulnerable and and you know beautiful reveal, and you just you know really did us all a, a real service. I mean, you very courageously just exemplified what it is we do here, right? Is we just we get we get vulnerable, and and it is our it's our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses that bind us. So I just I just wanted to know your name, just so I could thank you first of all, and. And, and just though very succinctly, because I'm just not clear what what you asked. So if we could just kind of laser it, what what is it you're you're asking? I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure what you were asking. Well, I think if I could put it in in one question of probably there would be more than one question, but if there was one question, it would be in the process of working the steps on this, and in the process of, for example, making amends to somebody who I've not been able to forgive. Or I feel like there's just for the, you know, this is kind of a soft word for it, but there's just this huge misunderstanding and misinterpretation because I was showing attention to this person out of meeting a need of the girl inside of me who, who never got my needs met by my father. For example, one being what you talked about with all of us girls, little girls, want our daddies to love us and want our daddies to pay attention to us. And sometimes in the course of wanting somebody in my adult life to make up for never having gotten that, I've created a, a relationship problem explosion. And I don't know if in the course of making amends, do I get into that? Or do I just like on a case by case basis, I guess with a sponsor, tell that person that I'm aware that I had, have harmed them in some way. And <laughs> Yeah, it, that it, makes sense? it does. And it's next to impossible for me to answer this question because I need a lot more information and I'm not sure, sure this is the venue for that, that, sure. that kind of a question. And this would probably be something that would your, your sponsor would have a lot more interesting insight than than I would have. Um, but certainly some questions that I would have around this, which would involve right what the answer is, is what is the nature of the relationship with this person that we're talking about, right, that these that, you know, potentially making amends to what is the potential future that you hope for in terms of that relationship? What is the third question? What kind of intimacy has that person modeled for you? That is, is this somebody who is, who's been intimate with you and feels, you know, shares? And because I don't want to get into one of those situations where I'm, I'm revealing more, I'm more intimate than, you know, than somebody I'm, you know, potentially connecting up with. And, you know, professional support, as I referenced, has been very, very useful for, for me in these regards. 
but yeah, those are those are just kind of some of the things that come up, Rosanna. You know, some some questions that I have, and again, everything depends. But it, it, the most important thing is what is the nature of the relationship, and and where do you want it to go? You know, staying staying very very conscious. This is a twelve step program, right? Not a not a group therapy program. But um, those are those are just kind of some of the things I think about, and those are some of the things I work out with my sponsor. I've certainly had plenty of instances where my sexual trauma and my pain had an effect on the relationship that I was in. I was, you know, my my husband was the fifth man. I was engaged to five men before my husband. I married my husband, so I and other than the one who died, they all like gently, you know withdrew their request, right? <laughs> to marry me. So, you know, I definitely had hurt people because of, um, hurt men because of what happened to me and didn't really make amends to any of those men at the time because I just wasn't conscious of it. I mean, these, you know, these were all things that happened when I was much younger. I guess there was one guy about 20 years ago and I, I did make amends to him, but I, it didn't, you know, I didn't connect it up necessarily with sexual trauma and stuff. It was just, you know, I'm sorry. I was, I'm sorry. I was so unkind and hurtful to you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so those are some of the things. So yeah, those are just some things for you to think about. We can always, you know, perhaps talk another time on an outreach call or email or something. But yeah, those are just my thoughts. Thank yeah. you. But thank you for giving us a gift. Yep, it's the vulnerabilities that bind us. Thanks, Rosanna. Tracy, go ahead. I am Tracy. I'm a chronic relapser. And uh, first of all, I just wanted to thank people who have shared about their sexuality because the more I hear about it, in meetings, the more apt I am to start talking about it myself. So um, I really appreciate that. I've never been able to get, I've had seven sponsees and I, I've never been able to get someone past step three. I've never taken a step, uh, a step four. And I wanted to know, am I taking them through steps one, two, three too quickly? And also, when you said that you hold someone's hand while they get into somebody else's boat, wh what does that look like? What, like what, sure. what does that look like? Sure, that's a, that's a great question, Tracy. So I'm gonna start with that one and then you'll, you'll take me back to the other one. Um, so just what I mean, if somebody decides, uh, you know, that they don't wanna work with me or they don't, because I ask people to do a lot of things. They're going to be reading and writing on a daily basis. They're going to be in this program. They're going to be sending me an email. They're going to be telling me what they ate. They're going to be giving me a, you know, 10 item gratitude list. That was my sponsor's idea. I'm still not really a fan of that, but again, I just do what my sponsor asked me to do. They're going to be doing, they're going to be going to minimum of three meetings a week. And they're going to have three service commitments at those meetings. They're going to be making outreach calls on a daily basis. We'll start with two. We're going to bump it up to three on a daily basis. They're going to start building a community. So I ask people to do a whole host of things because I don't want people to do what I did. I want them to stand on my shoulders. It's like Nancy said, right? Nancy talks in terms of what she does, right? She wants to help people not be into the chronic slipping and not in, get into the trouble. Well, I do too. I want the same thing too. If somebody isn't there, right? If somebody isn't ready to to put the food down or whatever, or they, they keep repeating patterns. As long as we're doing the step work, that's fine, but I wanna help them avoid a lot of the problems. And so many of the problems that I could have avoided over the years, over the years involved building relationships with people. I didn't know how to do that. 
So that's, that's what all the meetings are about. That's what all the outreach calls are about. And at the outside, it plays like, oh my gosh, I have to do all these things. I got this sponsor and yeah, rah, 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 who makes me do all these things. What I'm really doing is saying, I'm going to support you in being loved, in knowing your value, knowing how lovable you are, right? So that's that. And then, so if somebody decides, again, they don't want to do this kind of work and they want to work with someone else, then what I mean is, is I might say, oh, okay, well, I was at a meeting last night and, you know, uh, Susie from uh, Encino is available, right? And here, I think I've got her phone number in my, in my phone. Here's her phone, right? Here's her number. Give her a call. Or, you know, you might meet me, my home meeting there, it's a big meeting and, you know, finding a sponsor is always a numbers game. You know, there's usually a half dozen people available. You want to meet me at the meeting, right? So it's that kind of a thing. That's what I mean by holding somebody's hand and supporting them and then, you know, let go. I mean, it's not my business to find somebody a sponsor, but I certainly can support them in that way. So that's what I mean. Um, what was your other part of your question? Am I taking people too quickly through steps one, two, and three? Yeah. And is that why they, I never get anyone to step four? I have no idea. First of all, I don't get anybody anywhere, right? Okay. I don't have that power. I don't have the power to get anybody abstinent. If I did, my mother and my brother wouldn't be dead from diabetes, yeah. right? Myriad people in Overeaters Anonymous wouldn't be dead. I'm a writer. If I knew how to get people abstinent, I'd write a book. Probably be best friends with Oprah, right? If I knew how to help somebody get thin and get sorted out. So I don't get anybody to do anything. So that's one thing. Thank you, Alan on. And did I hear you say that you've never done a four step? Is that what you said? No, I'm a chronic, I'm a chronic relapser. And you've, you've never done a four step? No, I've done all the steps oh, very over good. and over I, and I, over. I, I, yeah. Okay. All right. So I heard wrong. Okay. Yeah. So yes, I, I have no idea what that's about, but I know it's not about you. Okay. Don't, don't take that on. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. I don't know what it's about, but I know that it's, it's very, you know, there's a lot of pain here, a lot of pain. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be in touch, Tracy. Maybe we can compare notes. You know, we can help each other. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I, yeah. I, you should, you should actually call me. I do have some interesting things to share and I've found some things that do work really well. I'm, I'm a question asker. So I, I would just warn you of that. Well, listen, well, I, 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 you know, just staying very, very conscious, right? These, these are just, you know, these, this is my two cents and I have my thoughts and I can share my ash, but you know, we'll, we'll help each other. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're a Socratic learner. It's a great thing, right? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tracy. Marina. Why did me come up so quick? Um, hi, I'm Marina from Michigan. I'm also overeater and a sugar addict. Thank you so much, Sheila, for your share. It was uh, so good. And my gosh, you opened up a lot of memories. Uh, the question I have, well, what happened to me when I was a senior in high school, I was sexually abused. And I buried it, buried it for a long time. I was in therapy. I was like 38 years old. And the question was asked, and I go, oh, yeah, I was. Then I went through EMDR. It's a process where you relive it. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But anyway, I seem to get over it. But now you're talking about this. I am not, I don't have, how do I put it, intimacy. I don't, by the sex. With my husband, I have a hard time. I just would rather not have sex at all. I don't know if I've really gotten over it or what the problem is, but the letter that you're referencing to forgive, oh, I meant to write something good about the person. I can't, I could not think of anything nice about this person. So I guess I'm struck by having a hard time with this. I, my gosh, I, I thought I dealt with this, but do you think that I still need to do some work on this? Well, I, I don't know. 
I know it sounds like you're you're in pain, and I I know that pain well. I still deal with that that pain myself. So I I really understand. As I said, I know that's where emotional uh, you know professional support has been very very useful for me. You know because this is a twelve step program. I just I I use Overeaters Anonymous as a twelve step program, not as a therapy group. I don't use meetings as group therapy. So I stay very, very conscious in terms of my relationship with my sponsors. I always have more than one sponsor in every program that I'm in, because it, quite frankly, it takes a village, as I've said. And I, you know, do those outreach calls. So, you know, I, I had a sponsor one time, one of my, you know, favorite sponsors in Overeaters Anonymous always used to say to me, she said, you should have five or six people who know as much about you as I do, because I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And I've never had five or six people who know as much about you know, my sponsor, as my sponsor knows, but I've had people who know a lot, who know just about all of it. So I just really build a a community. And I can just tell you in terms of sexual trauma, and I used to work for a psychiatrist, my background social work is it's very, very common, right? To when people who've had these kind of experiences, right? To be very turned off by sex. I always was too. And it's only in the last, you know, five years that I've kind of had an enjoyable experience. And as I said, you know, my, my husband isn't somebody who's happy, joyous and free in his own right. Right. So we were puzzle pieces. I just always thought I was the problem piece. Right. I wasn't, I was just one of the pieces, but uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, other ways to, to, to be intimate. I kind of put the focus and it all, for me, it all kind of emanates out of uh, my capacity to be emotionally intimate. And so that means being consistent. That means when I feel angry, going, diving deeper, finding what hurts, you know, getting vulnerable, asking for things instead of demanding things, you know, so there's just lots of, lots of ways that I explored this, but you're just not alone, Marina. I mean, for years, and I had a lot of sexual partners when I was young, because it was, you know, it's a very common, you know, again, I worked for a psychiatrist, it's textbook, right? It's really very, very common for people. If you don't have a good relationship with your father, to end up having real issues with promiscuity. And I did. lot of sexual partners. I have abortions in my history and just a lot of painful stuff. And I never enjoyed sex. I always used to say, if somebody would have said to me, you can either have great sex for the rest of your life, or you can have a New Yorker subscription, but you can only, you can only have one or the other. You can't have both. What would I be like? Pass, pass the magazines, right? (laughs) Pass the library card. You can either have great sex or a library card. I'd be like, bring it on, bring the library. I mean, I've always been that way. And that's sad. And I, there, there's real mourning that I have to do behind that. And like I said, my sisters were not molested, my two older sisters. And it's like, we came from different families. I mean, they know how to knit, they know how to sew, they knew how to get married and have a, you know, healthy sex life and, you know, kids and vacations and vacation home. I mean, they just knew how to do stuff that I just didn't know how to do. My whole life got affected by what happened to me. That's just the reality. And what I do on the days that it hurts is I make sure that I share it with somebody so that I'm not alone, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, not Marina that I, because I don't compare myself because I wouldn't want anybody comparing themselves to me, you know? So I don't compare, but what I do, like if if I'm hurting, right? So it's like I'm looking through like this, okay? So all I can see is what I've, what I can see through that. And when it hurts, it's like, 
this blows. Why did I get this? Why did I land these? You know, why me? Why my life? What I remember to do, Marina, and if I don't remember, I have people I can call who will remind me to just widen the vista, mm-hmm. to just pull it away so that I'm not just seeing this, but I'm seeing all of this. Because as I said, I don't want to compare myself to anybody, but there's a lot of pain in the world. There's a lot of people who are dealing with a lot of pain. And I just, I just want to know that I'm, I'm, I'm not alone and I'm healed enough that when I'm not caught up in my pain, I want to be of loving service to you and I want to spend more time in the joy. So it's, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole host of, of components. There's a whole host of, of, of things um, that it brought up for me with you sharing. So, you know, we should talk, you know, we can be buddies and help each other, but you're not alone. You're not broken. There's nothing that you can't have access to again. And you're safe here. You're safe. Thank you. You're safe in the world and you're safe here. Thank you. Yeah. You're wonderful. Yeah, back at you. You're courageous. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks for reminding us again, over and over. It's our vulnerabilities that bind us together here. Mm-hmm. It's not the ego-driven strengths. What did I, I oh, shoot. If I can find it, I'll have to see if I can find my, a, a guy said something at a meeting that just blew me away and I'll, I'll find it and I'll read it, but I'll, I'll get it in a second. Thank you, Marina. Eliza? Hi, this is Elisa in Los Angeles, compulsive overeater and bulimic. Uh, Sheila, thank you so much for all of your uh, experience, strength, and hope and time today. So when I first came into the room 10 years ago, I was lucky from the get-go. I was abstinent until I wasn't. So about six years into my abstinence, I gave that away. And I was out of the, I mean, I was stayed close to the rooms but was not abstinent in any way, gained most of my weight back, like a 70 pound weight loss, something like that. And I've really struggled the last several years to get back on track. And I, I think the longest strain I've had is about six months, but every two months, and I'm working with an incredible sponsor that I respect and love with all my heart. I don't want to risk losing that relationship, but every two months, I seem to think it's perfectly fine for me to put my hand down my throat and purge. And it's not even a binge. I haven't had sugar and I don't even know how long. So it's not even about the sugar. And I'm just curious what you might say to that. Like, why is it every two months, like I'll purge and then I'm right back on it the next day starting again which I just restarted again because so like I don't know what and I'm I'm of service I I go to so many meetings I'm working three programs have a relationship with my higher power is it just me taking my will back I don't think it's that I don't really want it but I don't want to risk my losing this sponsor who says you know it doesn't do she or I you know to enable me to think like it's okay to do that every couple of months, but keep working together if I'm not taking all of the suggestions. So I'm not sure what I'm not doing right, or I don't know. I guess I just wanted feedback on that because I'm not even binging. I'm not, I'm just 
doing that, like it somehow makes me feel better. I'm not sure what it is. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a healthcare professional and, and I don't know, but here's what I heard. I do have something that, that might be helpful. A couple of, couple of ideas is, um, and I just want to, let me just, excuse me, just a minute. I just want to check in with the people. So we, is this a hard, fast end at four o'clock? Uh, we usually do end at four, but if you wanted to stay on after for some more chatting, but in terms of the recording, we usually end right at four. Sure. Well, we could always stop with the recording and keep with, with questions. Elisa. So here, here's something. So there's a, a really powerful um, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, subset group here in Los Angeles, and they do something called, because they work with a lot of slippers and they help a lot of people who've been trying to get sober for a long time, and they have a really strong concerted way that they work the steps and how they interpret service and your, you know, your connection with your sponsor and things like that. And they do great work. But one of the things they do is they do something called a watch. And because these are people who couldn't get sober on their anniversary, so somebody's got, you know, 364 days, let's say you're, you know, what's today's May 2nd. So if somebody's sobriety date is May 3rd, what they do is they get a bunch of people together, whoever wants to show up and they show up at these restaurants and they get there at like nine o'clock at night and they're all going to eat together and, and commune and be together until midnight when it turns midnight and then they're going to stay like a half an hour afterwards and then they send the person home. So it's a watch. So if you know, because you said this a couple of times, this comes up at the two month mark. So that might be on your outreach calls where you get it stacked up. You get some people stacked up, right? Like I'm going to let Patty know and Donnelly and Betsy and Kat. I'm going to have, you know, my buddies that I'm going to be checking in. So that's one thing you can do because as I said, you kept mentioning the two month mark. So you already know. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, this was something I did with someone and what I do with people all the time is I'll say, um, cause again, I'm not going to manage anybody's food. I can't, I can't help anybody with your food. I don't have that power, but what I can do somebody I'm, I, I have to remember as a compulsive overeater, I'm powerless over food, but I'm not powerless over the work. I'm not powerless over doing the work. So if I ask a sponsee, like, let's say sugar is just, or let's say I was, if I was sponsoring you or I was one of your sponsors, right? Because, you know, as I said, I have more sponsors in all my programs. But if I was sponsoring you, then what I'd say to you is, are you willing, Elisa, to make an outreach call and call me and speak to me live before you vomit? Are you willing to do that? Right? Because you're powerless over bulimia and vomiting, but you're not powerless over agreeing to that commitment. And, and if somebody is not willing, and I've, I, do, I haven't had this experience, I haven't ever had anybody when I've asked them this to say, no, I'm not willing to do that. If you're not willing to do that, then the issue doesn't have anything to do with vomiting or the relationship. It has to do with your idea of willingness and where you're at. And what the book says is we have to be, we have to do these completely radical things. But if you were saying, yes, I am, I'm, I'm willing to call you and speak to you live because, and I'll always say to people, and don't worry, I don't have the power to stop you from vomiting. All I'm going to do on this short phone call, because I'm also not going to do pr practice frothy emotional appeal, because it also says that doesn't work. It says that in the doctor's opinion. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that kind of stuff either. I'm just going to remind you about a third step. I'm going to have you open your big book. We're going to go to page 63. We're just going to look. And I'm just going to, and it, again, then just lay it out for you. If you're anything like me, you can either have food and your behavior with food, or you can have a joyful, God-filled, loving life. But I can't have both. I can either have food or I can have a life. And all I'm saying is make a choice. 
I just am going to lovingly give you the opportunity and remind you what the choice is. I called somebody yesterday because I ate lunch and lunch wasn't enough. And I called and I just, I, you know, I wanted to go and she was in a hurt. She was in a market with her husband. She said, I don't have long what's going on. I said, I just, I just ate lunch and I want to eat another lunch. Can you help me? And she just interrupted me. And she said, it's not going to be enough. There, there won't be enough. There's not going to be enough food. There won't be. And it was so great. It wasn't like, oh, what are you feeling? What's going on? And, you know, and those are valuable things too, but it was like, it, like, let's cut to the chase. It's not going to be enough. And that was just because I was willing to make a call. So that would be, so those are the two things I would suggest to you put a watch in place and set up a situation with your sponsor. Just ask your sponsor. If she, and what I tell the people, I say, if you don't reach me live, it doesn't count. If you don't reach me live, it doesn't count. And I just need you to know I'm not somebody who walks around with my cell phone on. I'm just not, my life doesn't dictate that. I don't do that. So you got to reach me live. My commitment to you is when I see your, your call, if your call has come in, I'll, I'll, I'll call you back before I call anybody else back. So, so those are some things that, that might be helpful for you. And if I have a second part to that for just another moment, if you are working with somebody and they have, let's say, slipped or, you know, if there is there a certain number of times like you are okay with that before you say this may not be the right fit or no, no. never. I not as long as they keep doing the work, mm-mm. not as long as they keep doing the work, uh-uh, uh-uh. We can always go deeper, but I am going to ask people to do things like that. Because if somebody tells me, if somebody were to tell me, no, I'm not willing to do that, I'd say, I'm so, I hear you. I really understand. My sponsor has asked me to do this, right? And sometimes I would do it and sometimes I wouldn't. And then I would have to, because I don't lie to my sponsors. I'm not going to do that. So, you know, and then I have to come back and say, you know, you asked me to do that and I didn't do it, right? But no. No, I, but I am going to ask people, but if somebody adamantly says, I'm not going to do that, then what I would say is something like, I'm not sure how I can be helpful for you. I'm not sure how I can help you. If you don't want to take my suggestion, if you don't want to do what I do with my own sponsor, I'm not sure how I can be helpful for you. So, uh, so no, there's no limit. And again, we don't have time. Uh, if Maybe if we afterwards, if we keep talking afterwards, I'll tell you a story when I did this with someone and it just worked. It was a woman who had been trying to get abstinent. She was an um, anorexic uh, woman and it, she, she had a miraculous experience behind this with this, you know, you got to call me before you act out stuff. So, yeah. Um, thank you so much. And sure. the two things that I love the watch idea, I think that's brilliant. And I love that you suggested that, you know, that you... Um, made a comment about having so many people know you besides just a sponsor. I, I need, I want to let more women in for that reason. Thank you. That was, that was really great. Appreciate it. Let them in. Yep. Thanks. We still do have Patty, Sheila, you said you're, are you, you're willing to hang out for a few minutes after? Sure. For sure. I'm all in. Patty, is that okay? You'll hold your question until after. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you, Sheila. For being our speaker today, it was wonderful to have you with us and we appreciate you sharing your experience, strength and hope while giving service to the OA program. Together, we get better. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember to honor our commitment to each other's anonymity. Take the stories, but leave the names behind. Thank you everyone for being with us today. After a moment of silence, We'll close with the third step prayer. I will speak it aloud and invite those of you who wish to join me silently. First, a moment of silence for those inside and outside of the rooms who still suffer.
God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Thank you, everyone. Keep coming back. Patty, can you unmute yourself? I did. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, Sheila, for your share. That was uh, really great. I really appreciated what you shared, especially issues around sexual abuse. When I was five, I was molested by my older, oldest brother. You know, was raised in an alcoholic home. My mother, she knew, but she ignored it. So I did too. Anyway, I'm, I'm a compulsive overeater and I got hooked on sugar at a young age. I, uh, because he abused me, I went looking, I, we lived by the beach. Anyway, a group of pedophiles got a hold of me and re I kept going back because I didn't have my dad. And uh, I guess I wanted attention and also what was done to me already. I, I had questions, I guess. Anyway, it took years and years of an eating disorder and alcoholism and my brother, uh, you know, avoiding my brother. And I, um, went to Al-Anon because of my mother's alcoholism. And uh, my sponsor kindly told me once, you didn't ask for that and it's not your fault. And it's always the adults or the older person's fault, not yours. And with that information, I had a catharsis and an emotional release after all those years. And my healing with that began. And I got in touch with my, with AA, of course, I'd been in AA for years, but I asked him to 12 step me right away because I came out of denial. And uh, anyway, I've done a lot of healing around it. So we had a family reunion about four years ago and my oldest brother showed up and I thought, you know, it's been a long, cold winter. So I went up to him and I he was talking to another relative and I tapped him on the shoulder and I put my hand out and I shook his hand. And that was one of the best things I ever did in my life. So I was able to forgive him, you know, and he, he was quite glad to talk to me again and said he had missed me. Since then, he passed away. He, uh, he had cancer and he phoned me at the last minute before he died and uh, said, you know, I denied it for years, but I think maybe something happened. And I didn't know what to say because I only had about 15 seconds to talk to him. And I said, well, you and I are good. We're good, eh? We're good. And that's all I could think to say. And now I miss him. Now I miss those years that we could have had together had I been able to forgive him sooner, you know? And sometimes I think I'm still confused about it. It's like, you know, shouldn't I still be mad or you know did I forgive too fast I don't know but I did what I meant I thought was right at the time and I'm not sorry that I you know I tried to re-establish contact I re I don't know I'm sorry if I'm going on too much about this but I I just it's a relief and I'm thinking I, I need some uh, counseling around it need to talk to someone about it because he's now passed on and that's done. You know, there's nothing I can do about that. So I'm left sort of with a bit of confusion around. 
you know, sugar, that was how I comforted myself as a little kid. And that's, that's my main addiction is sugar. I'm going to be 40 years sober in November, but still I'm starting to work on my food addictions again. I've slipped in the past. So anyway, I'm coming back, I guess we call it. So any thoughts you might have, I'd appreciate. And if you don't, that's okay too. Thanks. Well, it was a, it was a beautiful, vulnerable share, Patty. And again, thank you. Thank you for trusting us and trusting yeah. yourself and really, again, validating and reminding what it is we do here. We reveal our vulnerabilities and that's how we get, we get bound up together. You said a couple of, of things that I would just mirror back to you. So you said that, you know, perhaps some, some professional um, support might be, might be useful at this point. And the one thing you said is you said you felt bad that your, your brother was gone. And, and I just want to make sure I heard this correct. Your, your brother is the first, he molested you, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you said um, you felt bad that, you know, all these years were wasted if you would have just forgiven him earlier. Yeah. Um, this is part, I think, of what, what happens to those of us who've been violated in these ways is we end up with an over, our, our capacity to be hard on ourselves and easier on others is too lopsided. There's no balance there. We're way too hard on ourselves. Because my first thought was when you said, and we can see it in others when we can't see it in ourselves. My first thought was, is when you said, well, I feel bad because I, you know, we would have had more time if I would have forgiven him years earlier. You also would have had more times if he would have taken responsibility and come to you potentially. Now, the reality is though, I never, and it, I told you I've sponsored two men who, who molested women. And if we want, I can tell you guys a story afterwards. I just want to finish with, with you, Patty. But, um, but I would never, with, with the, the one guy who'd molested a lot of women, again, maybe I will end up telling you the story because it's, it's kind of relevant here. But um, you, you never get to, you never actually get to show up and apologize to somebody. So let, let me just tell you the story and I can do this quickly because this is this will be relevant for you. So again, this was a guy who had been, I, I'm only telling you this so that you know that he had all of the resources you could imagine. So this guy's a famous musician, right? Mm -hmm. He had been trying to get sober. He'd had sobriety and lost his sobriety. And he lets me tell this story and obviously I keep him anonymous. So let's just call him Tom. He'd had, he'd been sober for a while and then he lost his sobriety. And we were at a meeting and, and he asked me to sponsor him. And again, I sponsor men. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have an opinion about it. My sponsor doesn't have an opinion about it. My husband's fine with it. So, you know, I sponsor men. And in the beginning, if women hadn't sponsored men in Overeaters Anonymous, we never would have ended up with all the men in Overeaters Anonymous that we have, right? Because we didn't have men hanging around to sponsor them. So, um, so it's just always been a non-issue for me. And so I start working with this guy and, and he alludes to the fact, I can't remember through the course of our work in the first three steps, but somewhere I get the gist of the fact that, you know, he's a molester and he knew my history, right? I I'd shared that I'd been molested. And so, but it's fine, right? He does his four step and it took me three days to listen to his four step. And it wasn't like they were eight hour days, but it took about six hours. And, and every, you know, I call talk talk to my sponsor in the morning, but she would call me at night on those days, right? Those three Thursdays when we would meet at this meeting. After the meeting, we'd stay for two hours and he'd read. 
And she would always check in with me at night, like, are you okay? And I'd say, I'm fine, right? I'm seeing him with the eyes of love, right? I'm seeing him with the eyes of love that you all are seeing me with right now as I'm looking at you on the gallery screen. And it was really powerful for him to have a woman, right, who had been molested to listen to him detail, right, on this four-step, how he'd molested like 20 women, including his daughter. And let's just call his daughter, let's keep it easy. He's Tom, let's call her Tanya. So we get to the eight-step, right? You made your eight-step list when you did your four-step. So Tanya is on his eight-step list, but I made sure he was very clear that under no, and she of course wanted nothing to do with him. She wanted nothing to do with him. She was married. She had a couple of kids. He'd never seen the kids. He was never going to see the kids. She wanted nothing to do with him. And I said, and he's wanting to know about amends. And I said, you never get to approach her. You never get to do that. You've, you, you, you never get to do that. Unless Tanya ever ends up in your sphere and she brings it up first, okay. that would be the only time you get to make an amends. And again, I worked for a very famous psychiatrist for five years, my background in social work. I was real clear that that made sense. And it made sense for my sponsor too, but I just, it made sense for many reasons. And so, and he understood that he got that, but still we have, you know, we have things we're going to do when we, we are on doing a ninth step. So when he gets to the ninth step, I had him write that four part letter, right. That I read to you guys. So dear Tanya, you know, please forgive me for molesting you. And it's different if you've done something egregious, right. And you're, you know, cause she hadn't done anything to him. So please forgive me for molesting you. He wrote something wonderful about her cause there, he didn't have to do the other thing. Right. You, you understand, right. He no. didn't have to do that other part because she hadn't done anything to him. Yeah. And, um, and then he wrote something nice and signed off his name. And I said, now I want you to write. So he did that cursory letter. And I had him do this with all the women that he molested, but obviously this was the most relevant one. And with her, I had him, and I said, and if you ever run into any of these women out and about at the mall, you stay far away. They're on that side of the street, you get on this side of the street, right? Okay. The only thing you ever do is if they ever come to you and they you know, bring it up, then you can say something. And if they slap your face, they get one slap. They've earned that. But a second one, you can stop them, right? And no, no, nothing if anybody's got a weapon in their hand, right? But, but you owe them that, but that's it, right? But you never get to bring it up with any of these. You never get to do that. You know, your amends are going to get made in sponsorship, uh, in spiritual relationship. And, you know, because he also had, you know, male buddies and program and stuff, you know, you, you, that's where you get to, to work out your amends. But, but it says that in the book, we don't take things to people if it's going to cause damage. And that's when Bill was talking about men who are having affairs. So if you are somebody who molested somebody, you, you, you do not get to bring that up to them, right? But I said, now what I want you to do is I want you to write a letter to Tanya. I want you to write, and you're just going to write on the computer, bring it to me next week and read it to me. So now I want you to just write the letter. If you got to say anything that you would want to say to her, wax poetic, right? And you're a songwriter, you're a badass musician. This should be good, right? Write, say, tell me what you want to say to her. So the next week he brings a letter and he reads this beautiful letter. I said, that's great. So now what I, and I, you know, I might've, you know, kind of fiddled here while well, you might think about this or perhaps this, or, you know, I'm wondering here, right? We massaged it a little bit. And I said, now I want you to next week show up and I want you to, this week, I want you to go get a really beautiful card, right? Get a really nice one, nice card. And I want you to copy the letter that you just wrote to me and write it in the card bring an envelope, bring a stamp and don't seal anything. Just do that. Bring it to the meeting next week. So he did. And after the meeting, he opens the card, he reads it to me, the same thing he'd read the, the week before, just about the same thing. And he's crying and I'm crying, right? It's beautiful and emotional. 
And I said, now seal up the letter and sign your name across it, right? And on the back, I, he, I said, write your, you know, the address that it's coming from you. So he did that up in the, you know, where it's coming from. And I said, now I want you to send it, you know, write it to her, right? You know, let's call her Tanya Smith. So Tanya Smith, care of Tom Smith, and then write your address, right? And then put the stamp on the letter. So he did that, right? And I said, now I want you to mail it. And when you get it back, I want you to bring it to the meeting next week. So he brings it, right? Does all these very things. Not quite sure why he's doing what he's doing. He said, but I'm sending it to her, but it's coming to me. I said, yeah. I said, because remember, you don't get to be in touch with her. You've lost that right. Never, ever, 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 ever. So he brings it to the meeting the next week. And again, he sent the letter from him to her care of him. Are you with me? But he's yeah. now, it's, it's circulated. It's been through. It's circulated through the world and he's got a postmark on it. And I said, right. now put it in your God box, right? And I said, you leave it in that God box until and unless you ever end up in a situation where you and Tanya are in conversation. So he puts it in his God box and, you know, I forget about it. He forgets about it. A year and a half later, I get a call from him. As he'd stop going to our meeting, goes to different meetings. And he said, oh my gosh, Sheila, you, you, you're never going to believe it. He said, Tanya called me. And I said, yeah, okay. What did she want? And he said, well, I didn't talk to her. She left a message. And I said, well, what'd she say? And he said, she wants to see me. What do I do? And I said, see her. He said, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what, you know, what am I going to do? What are, I said, why don't you take her to lunch? They were lunch. He said, yeah, but what, what do I bring up? Do I tell her? I said, no, 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 no. Remember, don't you, you don't remember the rules? What are the rules? And he said, I don't bring it up unless she does. And I said, okay, so now you know the rules. I said, I want you to bring the card, get, get it out of your God box, right? You still have it in there, right? Sent this a year and a half ago. So put it in your man purse, whatever you call it, your backpack. I said, bring it along. And unless she brings it up, he said, and he was clear about what the, how this was going to go. So I said, and call me afterwards. So he sets up this lunch date. They go to the lunch. Five hours later, he calls me and he's just sobbing. He said, you're never going to believe it. And I said, what? And Tanya was 30 years old. He said, she's been sober a year in Alcoholics Anonymous and she wanted to see me. And she just wanted to tell me that she forgives me for having molested her. And I said, and what did you do? He said, I told her how sorry I was. And I pulled out the letter and she got to see the letter that he had written a year and a half before that had been postmarked, that he'd signed the name, right? And they opened it up and they read it at the table and they just sobbed. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the power of what it is we do here, right? And, and God. Well, sure. But Alcoholics Anonymous, sure, sure. And Alcoholics Anonymous was founded based on... Um, you know, it, it came out of the Oxford group. So yes, the spiritual yep. program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's what I'm saying. But but you can have God out there, but if you don't have boots on the ground, yeah, it's a wash. That's the only reason I, I, I say that, right? Of course, God, God's all of it, right? God's the, the boat, God's the water, God's the oars, God's the this, God's the, that, but God's all of it. But you need boots on the ground, mm -hmm. you do. So, um, and the big book doesn't, it never says the word sponsor. So some people, you know, like, well, it doesn't say the word sponsor. It's like, okay, yeah, it doesn't. But on page 100, it says both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, Bill doesn't count his sobriety date until six months after he was sober and he got linked up with Dr. Bob. So it is a we program. The first and the third word in the first step, we admitted we, we admitted we were powerless, right? We not we. So it, it, that's essential. And it all happened 
because somebody was willing to show up. And again, I don't take any pride in this, but I am glad that I have been grounded and sponsored by very strong, committed, loving people, powerful mm -hmm. people who just said, get busy and go to work. Yeah. Because there are plenty of people who would say, this is insane. I mean, one of my girlfriends is an LA Superior Court judge. And it saddens me to say this, but she's not a fan of Alcoholics Anonymous. She says, I think it's crazy what you guys do there. I'm just like, oh, Christ. Well, it might I, be crazy, but we're crazy people. I need a crazy solution, right? Right. And I wouldn't, if I hadn't had program, the program like Al Anon and AA and Survivors of Incest, 12 step program or whatever, and faith in a higher power, I would not have put my hand out. So for mm -hmm. me, it, you know, that was the catalyst for me mm -hmm. was the 12 steps and just anything's possible with, with God, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. And again, based on where I came from, having had a very deep connected relationship with God, because I didn't have a relationship with flesh and blood, God, right? All of you, it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was at all, would I ever say it was useless, but I was still in unrelenting pain for years yeah. because I didn't have a connection with people. Yes. That's why I push meetings. I push outreach calls and I am not going to sponsor people if they're not willing to do those things. But I don't use inflammatory language. I don't say hurtful stuff. I don't cause more damage. I just say, I'm not sure how I can be helpful to you. Yeah, well, you have been extremely helpful to me today. Well, you have been helpful to me, but this is what we do here, right? But, well, again, take, take that and, and, and ask yourself, how many meetings are you going to? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, um, how many outreach calls are you making? My sponsor has me make three outreach calls on a daily basis. Yeah. And, 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 and that's how you build this community. That's how you get yourself set up. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yes. True. I just, uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, mm -hmm. there was a reason for, uh, I wasn't going to ask. I thought, no, I'm not sure if it's on topic, but <laughs> I'm really glad I did. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I'm glad we're all here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Is there anybody else who, if Sheila's still available, wants to ask any questions or we let her go and wrap it up? Let's see, somebody's got here. Jessica's got on her thing. If you quit now, you'll end up right back where you first began and where you first began, you were desperate to be right where you are, where you are now. Keep going. Oh, I want to read that again. That's awesome. <laughs> Jessica's got, if you quit now, you'll end up right back where you first began and where you first began, you were desperate to be right where you are now. That's awesome. Keep going. That's awesome. Jessica, that's sweet. Thank you. Can I take a, wait, well, I guess you, I can't take a picture. I love that. Jessica, will you be in touch with me? Because I can't take a yeah. picture. Of the screen. That's awesome. I love that. And I love the picture. Diane, I love those flowers in your picture too. All right, you guys. This was great. Let's Thank all remind you each other. Much. Thank you so much. We're going to remind each other when we forget. Oh, let me read you this last thing. Let me tell you this. God, I love this. This was a buddy leading my AA meeting for me. He says, my alcoholism sees landmines where there are none. Tells me I need to have my antenna up all the time and believes I have to take the temperature of everybody around me everywhere. 
This is in place unless I take the third step and surrender the little Steve for the God-driven Steve. And I just love that. Isn't that cool? And then he closed and he said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who return the shopping cart to the corral and those who don't. Right? That's the truth. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Right. Amen. Amen, sister. <laughs> well, love to you all, sweets. It was really great. Let's be outreach buddies. You know, my contact information is there. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye.